This is Shaco Art Speak. Hey, welcome to Shaco Art Speak. I'm Ryan Letario, and I'm here with my co-host. I'll let you say your name today. Do I have to? Do I have to say doctor? Yeah, I like. It. I would prefer it. Okay, Doctor Gareth Blackwell. How are y'all doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and just so people know, Gareth is so uncomfortable with calling himself doctor. That's why I do it. It's actually because it makes him feel uncomfortable, and um, he he's a better co-host thinker when he's uncomfortable. Yeah, totally. So That's what is, it is, right? Yeah, this is for everybody's benefit. I uh, actually had a student, a past student, email me the other day and. In the opening of the email, it said, hey, doc. And I yeah. was like, I'm okay with that, yeah. I think. I once had a student call me doctor and, uh, in an email. And I said, you know, this is the only time I'm ever going to get this. It's never going to happen again because I'm not, I'm not, there's no reason for me to do it. I don't have the capacity. I'm not, I'm not pursuing the degree. I just liked uh, being called doc because it made me feel like Doc Brown for a minute. Yeah. Back yeah, to yeah, the yeah. future. So I was, yeah. well, I, I, uh, uh, printed that email off and I, I have it in a plaque in my office. So it's, uh, it's my PhD. Well, Dr. Leterio, it's fantastic yeah. to have you here. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, yeah, so a couple of things. Uh, thank you all for the continued support uh, just in terms of listening. Uh, we, you know, we have an audience that's uh, growing. And so uh, we are humbled and appreciative and uh, eager to hear from you. So continue to share with us uh, your thoughts, your questions, your, your interests. Um, we want to continue to bring good content and in good discussion to the table, as we always say that the goal of this podcast is, is the, we think it's critical to both be known and to know each other in such a way that it, it creates a, a mutually uh, enhancing, mutually uh, beneficial, flourishing kind of context for art and culture uh, in the deepest and the broadest sense. Um, and, and that is a sincere uh, goal for us. And that is a desire uh, that this podcast would, would serve in some small way to, to bring that about. And so, um, Along the lines of uh, different kinds of artists and makers, uh, we, we're uh, jumping out of our minds right now. We have an uh, awesome maker here, awesome uh, artist, uh, extremely diverse, uh, really smart. Uh, I'm sure you'll see it in this or you'll hear it in this podcast. Um, and so uh, we want to welcome Sterling Hundley. Yeah, welcome, Sterling. Uh, thank you for being here, Sterling. Doctor, doctor, do, do, <laughs> doc. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I'm I'm really excited. So, no one knows the back matter of this, but you know we're all at the university VCU, and that's right. Uh, I've I've heard of your legends uh, for some time now. So, Ryan and I have met uh, in, in passing, and yep. uh, Gareth and I have not. But his uh, reputation precedes himself. He looks like a doctor. He does look like a doctor, doesn't he? Right, like he's going to age well into that category. <laughs> And um, hey, I'm not. <laughs> I, I feel like it's you're going to say that, and then one day I'll just hit a cliff, and it's yeah. just done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, either I, a cliff or a cliff bar, <laughs> one or the other. My favorite is I, I'm respectfully referred to as Mr. Sterling. Mr. Sterling. By yeah. college students. <laughs> <laughs> not grade school students. That's right, students. Mr. Sterling. <laughs> Mr. Sterling. Mr. Sterling. You know, there is something when, um, this is maybe not the same thing, but there is something about uh, aging. And then someone calling you sir or something like that, and I've had that happen a couple of times, and it really hit me that I was like, "Oh yeah, I've actually, I'm out in there. I'm not a, I'm not a student anymore. You know, I'm not, I'm not quote unquote young anymore." So, uh, Mister makes more sense to me now because <laughs> of the, the discrepancy in age. Uh, so I haven't been called that yet. That's that's I don't yeah I don't I don't even know what would uh, call that out of somebody. Well, my 
first name sounds like a last name. So people just get confused. Oh my gosh. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess that would be the case. Um, but Ryan, next semester, whatever freshman I have, I'm just going to keep referring to you as Mr. Leterio. I'm not going to call you Ryan. It's just going to be Mr. Leterio. Okay. Like, hey, you need to go open drawing studio with Mr. Leterio. Yeah. 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 Let's do it. So welcome, Sterling. Um, welcome. You, yeah, I'm trying to think of even where to start. We kind of secretly, we started off off air. And so my brain is uh, jumping around right now. Um, the way we, the way we have done it in the past and, uh, and, and kind of continue to do is uh, we're interested in, in, you know, starting points, points of origin. Um, Cause typically they're, they're uh, there's a lot of time involved. You're kind of uh, uh, growing up out of circumstances and desires emerge out of that creatively. And so, um, We'd love to, we'd love to hear a little bit of your story, how you, I mean, how did you get here? How did it start for you? And feel free to go back as far as, as you want to. Yeah. So, you know, being a professor, I get to talk to students a lot and like the sound of my own voice and uh, I've gotten to speak uh, quite a few places and, and it's, I guess, part of what we do, but, um, yeah, I, I would say that the, the origin story, if, if there is one, I, I want to preface it with this idea that when we begin as artists, you know, we get to choose the time and space by which people interact with our work, whether it's a, a song or a story or an illustration or a painting. We've carefully curated the point of view, the angle, the moment within reason by which people interact with our work. And, you know, Gareth, we were talking earlier, it's that can become a really challenging and frustrating thing if you don't see the process we do everything we can to hide process right yes and and so in doing that we get this idea that we were talking about earlier of of divine inspiration or this moment that that this epiphany hit and it doesn't work that way mm-hmm. at all it's it's a it's a work it's a pursuit of curiosity and you know so if anyone's familiar with anything i've done it's that singular moment but the point of access, I think, is realizing that time is such a critical element that mm-hmm. you go back and you can actually lay out the production of a piece of artwork, whatever form it takes, onto a timeline. It's like, no, there's a lot of failure mm-hmm. that goes up into those uh, choices. And ultimately, to use a painting as a metaphor for all creativity, it is a, uh, it's a collection of choices that have been aggregated over time. So to go back to you know an origin story for me, I mean, I... I have one moment that, that, uh, this is not my term, but the concept of genesis of identity, where, mm-hmm. where did you recognize yourself as a, uh, as a creator or an artist? It's been that way my whole life. Sure. I remember back in, uh, elementary school, mm-hmm. you know, probably kindergarten. And we were asked to, to do drawings for Thanksgiving. And I did a drawing of a native American brave and put it up on the wall. And I, I remember looking around and, and just being like, Mine's the best. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I was a cocky little kid, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but there was a history of, of my mom being a designer and, and having drawn. But there was something in that that was competitive. It was a qualifier. It was interesting to me. Um, and that was an assumption that I had in that moment. Well, moments later, the validation came and the teacher mm-hmm. brought the class over. And I just remember her pouring over my drawing mm-hmm. and feeling like, yeah. I was right. <laughs> right, right. And I would say that to take that concept of assumption versus validation, it's amplified up many times as an adult, but 
that's just the pattern that I seek. I make something with the assumption that it makes somebody feel or communicates an idea or accomplishes a goal. And then I look for a validation much more deliberately these days. Like I want a reaction. I want something yeah. to happen. Yeah. Sometimes it's money. Right. I want to get paid. Sometimes it's that people reach out to me and they, they say something that I wanted them to say, or they felt something that I was trying to translate, transcribe to them. So that's the pattern that's been repeated throughout my story for, for what it's worth. And uh, it wasn't until I was, you know, in my thirties where I recognized that this is not just a pattern that's repeated, but one that I can actually use as a device mm. to make my own rules mm -hmm. and justify the work that I'm doing. So started then started when I was a kid. Um, I've, I've had a pencil and paper in my hand my whole life. My parents thought I was going to be a writer and maybe some days still will I do a lot of writing. Um, but stories, pictures, I grew up, I love comic books. That was my first point of entry of, of any type of storytelling. I mean, I genuinely love them. I, I still get excited when I open a comic and I smell the ink on the paper. Yeah. You know, my pulse quickens and I get a little sweaty in my brow and it's like, it could be the worst story ever, but yeah, you know, and, and I don't, they're not part of my regular life anymore, but they're such an incredibly important part of my formative years that I don't want to dismiss any form or anything that affected me in such a significant way because maybe they're not part of the, the highbrow or the mainstream. So I tend to lean into those things yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and try to authentically say, this is part of my past. Why would it not be part of my present? Totally. Yeah, definitely. So comic books, uh, I, I have a, had a, my best friend uh, back in elementary school, or I guess it was elementary middle, we would go to comic conventions and I would see these uh, art competitions and he would just kill it every time he would go in and, and he could copy things to perfection. Yeah. And as this kid, he was winning against these adults. And I, I remember, <laughs> I remember having this, this tinge of jealousy, not, not even a tinge. I was just like, I want that too. Right. But in that moment, in those moments, I do very deliberately remember thinking, but I don't want to copy anybody else's work. I don't want to go that path to get that mm -hmm. validation. And so I would always come up with my own characters, my own visuals, and, and they were always really terrible, <laughs> you know, just, I didn't have the experience at that point yeah. in time, but there was something in that moment. I just look back on that, that I, I've, all I've ever wanted to be is myself mm -hmm. and figure out what that is. And, uh, I, I think that that's one thing that, that I, I get frustrated with in, in culture these days is there's a, a movement towards everything that's, that's the similarity and the consensus. And I just, I don't function that way. Right. Right. So comics, kindergarten drawings, um, high school art frustrations that, uh, you know, getting a bad grade on a project and asking the teacher, can you tell me why? And her response is, well, you didn't sign it. It's like, yeah, yeah I was I not welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then, uh, I fell in love with basketball and I was convinced in my own mind that I was going to be a professional basketball player and my body said differently. Um, so when I was asked by my dad, you know, what are you thinking about doing professionally? I was like, I'm going to be a professional basketball player, dad. Yeah. It's the first time and only time in my life where my dad goes, what else are you thinking about? <laughs> <laughs> Plan B, I'll be a professional artist. Hmm. What else? No. It's a, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, a, yeah. totally supported me and, 
uh, found my way to, to VCU through a number of crossroads and different paths. Right. But um, yeah, that led me up to just my time in college. And, and I will say that being an athlete, one thing that uh, I, I would not replace for anything is I, when I was in high school, I had no social life. I, I carried a basketball with me everywhere I went. I became as obsessed as you can be with something. Mm-hmm. And I would wake up at, you know, four or five and I would go, you know, to practice at the open gym with uh, my best friend, uh, Joseph Cantwell, uh, at that time. And he and I would just shoot around. We'd play for a couple hours before school. School would start. I would skip lunch. I would go do shooting drills mm-hmm. instead of eating lunch. Then I would go to classes. Then I would have practice on the team. And then I would stay after practice and I would play. I mean, I literally was consumed with this and I would carry my basketball around with me in the hallways. And yeah. So when I became, um, when I decided that that was not a path for me, that it, it didn't have an application beyond high school and I turned my efforts back into art and creativity, I very deliberately took that passion and poured it into my willingness to, to push really hard in, in art school. Yep. And my basketball became a sketchbook and I carried my sketchbook with me like I did my basketball. So I, I was always okay being on the outside of things and doing things that I needed to do. Yeah. 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 I relate. To, I mean, I, I relate to that because I was a, you know, um, I don't talk about it much, but it was a basketball junkie. So I played, I mean, I played basketball, everything you're saying, I used to wear, uh, I don't know if you were, I don't know what generation you are, but the strength shoes, yeah, the big yeah, platforms. Man. Yeah. Mm. So I, I used to enter slam dunk competitions. So really? was, yeah, I was a, uh, like a six, eight high jumper in high school. So I was this novel guy that could slam dunk a basketball. Like my wife always wants me to get rid of my trophies, but I'm like, I can't do it anymore. So if I, you know, the trophies are the only evidence I have this is pre pre YouTube. This is the early nineties. I and, like you even more now. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so I was like, Oh, there's a romance going on now. Cause you're talking like you're, I'm like, you're literally describing, I mean, I carried a basketball everywhere. Got up. I mean, that's all that I did. And once I got once, and so I did uh, some high jump in college and played basketball and flirted with it and could shoot and, in play and I had a street reputation and spent too much time doing it. So, I mean, I got into my, probably around 22, 23, it was like, I got it. I got it. Um, I had a patella tendon injury, couldn't high jump, uh, took some time off, got out of shape for the first time in my life. Didn't realize how significant that was. And then things started to unravel for various reasons. But, um, basketball, once I went back to school, it was basketball and high jump together. They're kind of like just wetted up for me. Um, did all the same things. So I just had a personal experience where also the discipline, the work and the passion, the obsession was so insane uh, and transferable. And I had been doing art my whole life anyways, but, um, but also, um, also like knowing how to, knowing how to deal with the, 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 the given limitations that you have. Right. And not letting comparison overwhelm you to not doing. So, you know, I had the, uh, blessing and the curse of high jumping in maybe like the golden era of California high jump in high school. And there's a guy named Jeremy Fisher. He's this five, seven guy, um, that in our senior year jumped seven, four and went on to jump seven, six, going to the Olympics. And you can look him up. He's an Olympic coach. Now he's coached, uh, triple jump champions and all kinds of stuff. Anyhow, there was just never a time where I was going to beat him. It just did not matter. And I was a good high jumper. I mean, I'd still be ranked right now uh, year in and year out in California just based on my performances in the 90s. So at that point, you're like, well, 
I got to figure out how to maximize what I can do. I can't worry about the fact I'm always going to lose to this guy by yeah. a long shot. This guy is going to kill me every time. So that carried over into to my art practice. And I found myself inspired by other people, sometimes a little envious, as you said, but also uh, just like, well, how do I get into my game, if you will? How do I develop myself? And um, that massively has shaped my educational approach through college, out of college, into what I'm doing now. So to touch on that, the... Uh the idea of jealousy mm-hmm. is a really important concept for me because everyone feels it. Yeah. You know, it, it's this ember that burns in your gut. And I, I just, I remember very early on deliberately thinking about jealousy and like, you know, I'm jealous. And it's like, do I have a right to be jealous? Have I worked hard enough to earn that jealousy? You know, do, am I capable enough? And this applied to whatever it was. And, and with basketball, like, it was easy for me just to double down. I'll work harder than everybody sure. else. Yeah. I'm going to run cross country when everybody else is taking the season off, you know, and uh, there are things related to all that, that was just work harder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I've come to realize is that there are those amongst us who take that jealousy and they use it as inspiration. Mm-hmm. They actually turn it and say, well, if there's a fire that's burning there, I can either let it defeat me. Mm-hmm. I can, respond to it in the negative, or I can look at this and say, you know, if somebody else could do this, I can do it. And through that thinking, some of my best teachers from history, Mm -hmm. art history and and everything else have been people whose work I don't admire, people who I I look at their success. I'm like, you know, that's just not, I don't get it. Right. There's got to be something to it that's, that's, you know, they knew somebody, you know, there's something to it that's not aligned with what I've seen as an output. And that forced me to start reading about their history and not just what they made, but when they made it. Yeah. That's correct. And under which limitations, limitations are enormously important in the creative field. We think the opposite. Yeah. You know, if you're creative, it's wide open. You can do whatever you want. That is the death of creativity. I think creativity is born from those limitations. Right. Right. So just, uh, just to touch on that, that idea of, of, of jealousy is also a choice to be inspired once you recognize it and say, well, now I just need to do the work. Yeah. So recontextualizing of what's going on on the inside and framing it in such a way that it actually works to fuel, um, which is a choice. Definitely. I mean, there's a point where, yeah, there's a point where you're like, what is this doing for me? Is it consuming me or um, is it, is it something where, yeah, I'm having to, I think, I think a lot of emotions uh, run amok. And, and we don't allow them to be specified in such a way that we can understand them and therefore respond. And, uh, and so I think a lot of folks are uh, hindered in that way. You know, they, they, uh, the thinking about it, you know, the feeling overrides the thought and instead of there being a more healthy marriage between the thinking about and the feeling and so on. And so, yeah, I think that's, a, I think that's an interesting idea to kind of, because I, I don't, I don't know anybody. I mean, I think you're the first person that's talked about that out loud of anyone that we've talked to, but also in, recent memory. So <laughs> that is not someone most folks own. Well, know? that's what you'll get out of this podcast. Yeah, that's I'm, good. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be pretty open. Yeah, let's about do it. These things because, you know, you're, you're both uh, professors and, you know, I, I had some, I had one wonderful professor mm-hmm. and the rest were not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, thank goodness the, the education at our university has changed. There's all mm-hmm. new people and everything else. But the, the thing that was so frustrating about it was, I knew the truth because I was engaged outside of school. And when right. I was told things that weren't the truth, that just like, I don't understand the ego that's required 
to do that. I mean, I, I'll be the first person to admit my mistakes and faults. And I think I do that because there's a learning process through that. You know, I'm not trying to impress anybody that I'm teaching. It's just, yeah. this is what I do. This is how I did it. And, you know, my job is to help you navigate how to get from where you are to where you want to be. And it's not where I am that you want to be. It's where you want to go. We got to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And our job as professors is to help them navigate the minefield from our experience. Right. You know, don't do this. Don't do that. Tell me what you're, you're seeking. And I, I think the only way that you can genuinely get people there is to be honest with them. Correct. About, yep. You know, the, those, the process. Yeah. 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 yeah definitely. The, um, I think every class I've taught in the last five years, we've had at least some point early in the semester where we deal with concepts of fear and failure. Um, and students sometimes will say like, you know, this, this is like a super depressing day for me because you're talking about failure. And that's the thing that just terrifies me. I'm like, well, I want to talk about these things kind of like with jealousy, because we don't want to say, Oh, they're not here and just kind of close our eyes to the reality of things. But we do want to say, uh, how we approach them actually matters hugely. So in one of my courses, I have students do an assignment where they create a resume and everything on it is something they failed at. That's great. So in school, <laughs> in their careers, that'd be a um, long resume everything. for me, dude. And that's the thing, right? I'm like, easily, this has to be the easiest project you could ever do because in my sleep, I could tell you about my failures Yeah, because right? they're just, they're present and you can read through them and you can, you can get a better gauge of the students who, are kind of fast tracking towards a different kind of success because some students are very comfortable talking about it as something that happened and other students see it completely as like an identifying statement. Mm. And that's really problematic because it's like, you can't let the failure be your point of identification because then you can't let it go and learn from it and really move into something else. And so this sort of like raw emotional space, a few weeks later you have students who are like, Oh, this makes sense now. Like I, I, get what we were doing at first. I thought you were just being a cold hearted jerk asking us to just tell you about all the things we've done wrong in our lives. And yeah. I was like, no, it's, it's really about pulling it out and saying everybody in this class has had the same failures. Um, yeah. How do you respond? Well, you know, I think it's a brilliant exercise and you know, that's kind of uh, equivalent to coming to art school and having someone tell you about negative space for the first time. Oh yeah. You've got, the thing and then you have the space around the thing and then you draw a box and you define the space around the thing and it's uh it's the counterform it's dark matter it's these things mm-hmm. that that we don't see that you can't feel you can't express but they are just as powerful if not more powerful mm-hmm. than the things that are known it's the things that are unknown that we as creatives are are driven by these curiosities we want to shed a light on those things mm-hmm. so if you're fearful of failure you know my statement on that is failure and fear is a filter mm-hmm. that's going to cut out the vast majority of people who are afraid to look at the things that they're afraid of. Mm-hmm. Right. But if you get on the other side of that fear, I, I call it the clearing. It's a call to the clearing. You're, you're in a space that very few people occupy. And in that space, that's where the, the, the soil is the richest and you can till that soil for new ideas, new concepts, new opportunities. Yeah. That's a beautiful thought. It really is. Um, I'm going to write a song about that, man. I'm feeling emotional today. <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's Monday morning for me, so I'm a little more emotional on Mondays. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk. It, um, I was reading a, an interview with you, Sterling, and one of the um, kind of stories you told was about be, uh, kind of your, your first kind of break being called in uh, by Fred Woodward to Rolling Stone. 
and uh, his conversation with you. Um, and I think it's a good time to kind of bring that up. Could you recount that story? Yeah. So one thing that Ryan and I were, were talking about moments before is just kind of uh, the, the introduction of the history of the past, not just the origin story. But um, so I'm still an illustrator and I get opportunities to do that, but um, I very publicly kind of quit the industry and I kind of divorced my agent and went through this maybe eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was after having gotten to do many of the things that I wanted to accomplish as an illustrator. And uh, I, I say that with, with humility and, and appreciation, but setting goals, accomplishing goals. One of the top goals at that point in my life was to work for Rolling Stone magazine. It was just the pinnacle in the world of editorial and Fred Woodward was the ultimate art director to work for. So the story, it takes a, a bit of time, but um, I'll, I'll spare you the back matter. I will just say that I found myself on whatever floor of this building, this high rise in New York City. And uh, I was sitting underneath a Pete Townsend smashed guitar that was, <laughs> you know, covered in plexiglass. And I just, I was in the building, having gotten through security, having secured an appointment. I was wearing a suit. I had a briefcase and I looked as, about as, you know, out, <laughs> out of context as you could be. And um, I sat there and I, I was waiting and then I was waiting and I was waiting and uh, hours went by and I had asked somebody who was behind the, the glass door, like, can you see if Mr. Woodward is there? And um, he had forgotten about me. <laughs> so I was sitting oh, there man. just waiting. But I mean, what was it? I wasn't going to go back downstairs. And yeah, he, at uh, end of the day, he kind of popped back out. This is after maybe three hours of me oh sitting gosh. in the waiting room. And uh, he saw me and he just does one of these things like, oh, smacks his head. He goes, I completely forgot you were here. Unreal. <laughs> man. And he goes, uh, I don't want to take any more of your time, but, you know, would you still meet? He asked me if I would still yeah. meet with him. Yeah. I guess I'll give you the time, Fred. Yeah. Did you look at your watch and go, well, I have some other things. Um. <laughs> you know, so it's interesting, the psychology of that moment, like thinking right. back on it. It's uh, this guy who owed me nothing. Mm. Immediately felt indebted to me sticking around. You know, it's just weird how things work. You know? Sure. Um, not that I took advantage of that or played it, but I was like, yeah, I would love the chance to talk. So yeah. he led me down the, um, the labyrinth of, of the, the, the cubicles there. And I was seeing all these, uh, paintings from Philip Burke was one of my uh, illustration heroes that like eight feet tall and, you know, portraits of Kurt Cobain and, and, uh, Prince and, and wow. Jimi Hendrix and everything else. And, uh, we went back to this quiet little corner and this, this woman was sitting down. It was Gail Anderson, the other legendary art director from Rolling Stone. And um, I hand my portfolio over to Fred and I'm talking to Gail as I'm sitting down and I'm, I'm going through the whole, I'm just so happy to be here. I'm, I'm thrilled. I can't believe, you know, I, I'm totally fanboying now. I'm just geeking out. And so I hand the portfolio to Fred and I turn to talk to Gail and I'm going down to sit on the stool. And in that moment, he opens the portfolio. Within a second or two, he closes it hands it back to me and, you know, just as my butt touches the, the stool and I, I can't show it in podcast, but I do this really awkward half sit, half stand back up thing. <laughs> and he goes, thanks for your time. Oh, and hands it to me. Mm. And 
I mean, I was really taken aback, but uh, I, I gave him a bit of attitude. It's like, well, thanks for your time. Yeah. You know, and he goes, I, I'll never forget this question. He goes, tell me what you're trying to accomplish with your work. Now, I'm not sure if you all have seen signs with Mel Gibson, yep. like the scene with the end where everything happened for a reason. It all comes back together. And in this moment, I realized that my friends had been telling me that my work was too close to one of the people that we studied with, Gary Kelly. We had taken this long, brutal trip where we critiqued each other's work the whole time. The art directors, everybody, my professors are all telling me the same thing. You're doing interesting work, but it's way too close to your, your teacher. Well, I had used Gary's name to get into the door mm. with Fred. He had let me uh, use it as an endorsement. And I just realized, I said, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, my work is too close to Gary Kelly's. And his response was, you can sit back down. Wow. Oh, my gosh. So that was, he was teaching me a lesson. Wow. Teaching me a lesson in that moment. And I, I responded. I said the right password, right? So we sat back down. We had a long conversation. And a couple of things came from that meeting. One, he was going to throw me a bone. He's going to be like, mm-hmm. look, we're going to find you some work. We'll get you a project if you don't hear from us in three weeks. We'll find a spot illustration, which a spot is just a small little quarter page or something like that. And, uh, you know, he was going to gift me an opportunity. And as the conversation went on, he kept telling me, like, there's only one Gary Kelly. Even if you do it better than Gary does, which you never will, there's only one. Mm-hmm. And he was just talking about authenticity. He was talk- talking about personal voice and the need for doing something distinctly different than other people. And that's when Gail spoke up and she said, you know, you sent us two black and white pen and ink drawings mm-hmm. when you were right out of school on a postcard. That was like a year before. And she goes, you never sent us anything else. We had it up on our bulletin board for a year. We were going to hire you, but you never followed up. Whoa. You don't know what you don't know. Right. So right. I'm sitting right. just going through this and I thought it was like this, you know, ivory tower that I would never get into and this, that, and the other. And it was like, no, the, the reality was I had planted the seed long before. I just didn't have the conviction or the courage to kind of follow mm. through with it. So, um, Fred kept on. He's like, well, look, if you don't hear from us, reach out. Da, da, da. And I said, well, can I ask you both a favor? Would you mind if I went back and did new samples like those original pen and ink drawings that I did? Fred's like, no, 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 no. Just, just wait to hear from us. Gail speaks up and she goes, you know what? I'd really love to see that. So, of course, I went back home uh, to, to Richmond uh, a couple of days later, just spent several weeks doing new samples. And I sent the samples up and it was maybe two weeks later, I get a phone call from the 212 area code. I, I knew it by heart at that point. And I was Rolling Stone calling and I pick it up and it was Fred Woodward. And I'm jumping through the roof. He goes, we got a story for you. It's like, what's the story? He goes, we want you to illustrate the table of contents for Rolling Stone for the 10 year anniversary of Kurt Cobain's death. Wow. man! And to do a portrait of Kurt Cobain. Wow. So it went from a spot, a gift to something I earned. Mm. And he wanted to acknowledge that I had earned it. Mm. And so that piece went on and had the cover of a, a illustration competition annual and just it set my career in motion. But it's just interesting that my, my dad always said to me, he's like, you know, one of the hardest things is to recognize an opportunity when it comes. Mm. Yeah. 
And I recognized it in that moment. Just, it wasn't quick thinking, but it was, we're talking about being honest. Mm -hmm. I was honest. I was honest with myself. I was forced to be honest Mm -hmm. and opportunity came from that. Yeah. So that's the story. Yeah. What an incredible story. It's fantastic. And that's a wrap folks. We can't, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, so I don't know if this is counterproductive, but, um, I'm listening to you talk about that moment and you, you got to kind of be present. There's a way that you got to be present in that moment. I mean, you're, you're navigating a lot of pressures. You're navigating a lot of desires, historic desires. And so um, it's like that uh, pilot that landed the plane in the Hudson a couple years ago. Um, Totally. Yeah. So everybody, you know, it's been talked about, but it's, it's such a great example as, you know, we marvel at the moment, but the moment uh, was born out of a, series of moments leading up to that point. And so the decisions at that point came the way that they did because he's got 30 years in. So what I'm, what I'm just interested in as an aside is uh, you mentioned your father uh, in that point that he made um, recognizing a, you know, a moment when, when you're in it or an opportunity or what have you Um, were those discussions you were having growing up as a kid? I mean, like, was that a part of the, the framework of the way you were brought up? Like, what was there a promotion of of honesty at that level, or or you know, like, was there a fostering of a willingness to 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 own a mistake? I mean, there's something insane about saying, in my mind, because I like and I I gravitate towards it. I tend to sometimes be honest to a fault. Sometimes, um, the idea that you you could concede in that moment, my work looks like my my mentor, my teacher, too much which is a profound moment in my mind. Um, so, was. so was there, was that, was that out of the blue? Was there some kind of uh, place for that kind of honesty? The reason why I asked it is I feel like that's missing so much mm. for so many. And so I'm just curious about that. So I, every time I, I give a talk, I can't help but recognize my dad and my mom. I mean, it, it, I'm such a, perfect hybrid of both of them so my dad uh at this point he's written uh three novels uh he's he's working on a draft of one today called uh, the justification murders you can find it on amazon a little plug Excellent. for him yeah um uh, blind legacy is the other one um which is a civil war uh novel and that's what he's doing now but my whole life my dad has been an idea person an entrepreneur um he's had companies that he started that have been really successful. He started a, uh, a courier service here in town. I actually used to work when I was 14 down at the um, uh, Riverfront Towers wow. uh, in the mailroom delivering packages all through Richmond. I was on foot and I was back when Sixth Street Marketplace was here and everything else. Yeah. And um, So he owned a company that he started after he had lost his other job in telecommunications and he started it with, uh, we had moved out to the West End at that point. And I mean, there, there's stories they tell. We we never felt like we did without. Yeah. Know? But he's like, yeah, you guys only had one or two pairs of pants. We, we yeah. didn't have any money. We were literally in a new house that we couldn't afford. I had no options. So I started my own company. Wow. And that company thrived because he had to make it thrive. Mm. His, you know, mom was doing some freelance work, but it was, she was mostly home with, with us. And, uh, but I've got to tell you, as a kid, I never felt it. Mm-hmm. He never brought it home. He never, I mean, the work was there at home. He, sure. I was filling out uh, <laughs> duplicate and triplicate forms. And I, I had a, a 
a kidney that ended up in my living room once that I was dispatching. So (laughs) (laughs) this is another story, but, um, so it's, uh, it did come home, but the, the weight and the emotional intensity that he must've been going through with both of them, we never felt it. And, uh, so seeing him do that and and always doing what he had to do, very blue collar Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, just, he, he works and he doesn't stop working. He loves to work. And, um, so I get that from him. Mm-hmm. Very resourceful. Now, mom is, is, uh, a true creative in every sense of the words. Mm-hmm. And the, the examples I give is she'll handcraft doll houses that look like the houses that she grew up in, in Montana down to every piece of furniture and the electrical wiring. Wow. Gosh, but that's amazing. But <laughs> that's, amazing. that's amazing. But then she'll want to put electrical wiring in their cabin on the house and she'll go do that. That's great. Oh, wow. That's so fantastic. like the yeah. scale of, there the you nature. go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she's from Montana. They, her father, my grandfather was, uh, the number one, uh, guy in the national forest service for a bit of time, but he started off as a park ranger and her childhood, she, you know, thinks back to having her summers on these fire towers where they made do with, without. And so there's a, ton of that information that's uh, just being resourceful and, mm-hmm. and being honest about what you have both of them huge uh huge native american uh buffs we would walk through tilled fields and find arrowheads i've got one when i was four that i found wow. you know and then uh my dad brought us to richmond because he's such a huge civil war historian and we've got we grew up with artillery shells and swords and i remember digging out a cannonball out of the, the river with my dad and old bottles so that aesthetic is there in mm-hmm. a deeply yeah. way so um yeah those conversations were happening because they had to happen uh, right. authenticity and uh honesty and brought up with very strict idealized ideas of what the world was we were talking about that earlier today and there was no gray space it was there was right and there was wrong and things that you didn't do and things you did do and you shook someone's hand when you looked in the eye and you know and i'm so thankful for that yeah clearly yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. there's space in between uh in nuance that you learn as an adult and life is not black and white but i'm so glad as a child that i had those structures in place that put me on a path of knowing that i wanted to accomplish things and that i had to work hard to get them yeah wow i mean that's that's really that's really awesome and um i think it's um all the ways i thought i think i i thought i needed to act uh when i first started out doing creative work um has been changed drastically as now i'm on the other side in the potential of hiring contractors to do things with me right um and the things that i thought were so important uh are not the things i look for in people at all um so um when i think of this story uh, with Fred Woodward, um, I put myself in his place and I think, well, if, if somebody came to me and they actually stood there and said, you know, actually here's truthfully what, what the problem is, can I do something else? Like that right there would cement somebody so much more than if you had come in with the perfect portfolio that I exactly wanted to see. Cause I feel like that's a, that's a facet of work that isn't the work itself that tells you so much about whether or not it's going to be quality work. Because I mean, you can find folks that just do good work, but it's hard to find people that have good work ethic or desire for the work to be good, no matter the situation. Those are 
very different things. Um, and so a question I have is when you brought that portfolio in, the one you had with you, what was your kind of thinking behind what you included in it? What did you think that people wanted to see? How did you build that out? Cause that's a, I think it's a question that I hear a lot from students of like, what does my portfolio need to look like? And it's hard to get them to a place where it's like your portfolio needs to be distinct and exceptional. And so I can't tell you what it should look like except for those two things. So do you remember at all how you were thinking through? I love this question. I don't get these questions enough. Yeah. Right? So this, this is the stuff that I love that lives above the skill-based question. What pencil do you use? What's mm -hmm. the process? What's the technique? I mean, yeah. and, and above even that, like the things that I love to talk about are personal voice, authenticity, distinction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, aside from the commercial application of that, the need for that in the world, mm -hmm. you know, to, right. to, to explore those unknown spaces and, and to, to make them known. Mm -hmm. So the question about the portfolio is, you know, the, the first question I asked you all on here, and I, I'll, I'll say this probably in poor taste, but I said, can I use a, a cuss word every once in a while? Right. And you're like, well, we, yes, it's fine. It's fine. And then we start, talked about, you know, kids being in the audience. You have an audience. And I want to be aware of that. I want to relay to people. And when I go to teach a class, I have an audience. And um, that's such a critical element, uh, whether it's industry that has an audience or audience that you're speaking to directly. You are, as a creator, are crafting a product, mm -hmm. content, message, a feeling, whatever it is, to speak to another person. And I, I, don't, I don't really buy into the idea that I just paint for myself. Right. Yeah. And it's this romantic concept that you hear in arts all the time. Like I, I just paint for myself. I think what people are trying to say and, and how that comes off are two different things. That's right. I agree. Because it's an internal narrative versus mm -hmm. an external narrative. And as an illustrator, I dealt with external narratives, other people's stories all the time. Right. As a painter, I'm searching for my own story and there's genuine authenticity to that. But when I hear that statement, it's like, I don't care what anyone else thinks. I'm going to paint for myself. At some point, you know, a book assumes a reader, a song assumes a listener, a painting assumes a viewer. And if you miss that connection, you miss the opportunity to connect across time and space with another person mm -hmm. and to take something that's intensely personal and share it with somebody where it actually might move beyond personal therapy into a catharsis or therapy for somebody else mm -hmm. or empathy or whatever, however yeah. it manifests. So Some kind of enrichment. Right. Yeah. And that's what the arts do. Sure. And that's the intention that Tolstoy said that art is the transfer of emotion from one person to another. Mm -hmm. I, I've never heard it put better. You know? Yeah. That's great. So um, sorry to, to digress, but as far as a portfolio, that particular magazine has an audience. And the, ch the challenge with commercial illustration and artwork is that at once you're expected to create something that's authentic, distinct, that communicates. And it's a paradox. That's mm -hmm. a really challenging paradox because how do you do something that is using potentially new language systems to communicate ideas to people, you know, that, that are kind of a, a, a mass uh, audience, right? So you're, you're speaking to the Rolling Stone audience. They're well-versed on music, mm -hmm. you know, that they, they might have a real appreciation of, of the history of, of music, but you don't know if they're, they're great readers. 
it's not like the Atlantic Monthly where you're going through and like these people are invested in reading mm -hmm. in literature. And if I work for the Atlantic, I can kind of amplify the message and the sophistication of the concept. If I'm working for Rolling Stone, you know, I, I'm not going to dumb it down. I, That's I, right. But I just have to assume that there's a different audience. Now, if I'm working for, um, you know, at a, chide, a sidewalk festival with chalk, different audience, you know. So um, I always curate my portfolio, you know, and, and admittedly, being older and being in my forties and not being in my twenties, I have a lot more artwork to choose from. I've mm -hmm. done a lot more stuff so I can swap out those pieces. And, and you know, this, you, you just need 10 to 12. Yeah. You don't need more than that. Right. More than that is overkill. So it's a finite number. Mm -hmm. And when right. I tell students that like 10 to 12 pieces, all it takes, someone gets a great idea of what you can do and what problems you can solve. So if you do 10 to 12, you know, it's, that's not a insurmountable number. Mm -hmm. That's not intimidating. For, for students. Right? right. Right. So I always swap things in and swap things out. And at that time, musicians, portraits, um, anything that, that dealt with that specific history or, or could show that I could do a likeness. That was very likely the work that I was going to get for, um, for Rolling Stone down to the, the, the new album release or a, a portrait of a celebrity that they couldn't photograph. So knowing that they had limitations on budget for photography and everything else. That's a space to say, well, my artwork can actually solve that problem for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. Great. That's great. Yeah. So like running parallel in a way in my mind, um, well, shoot, I'm thinking about the embedded idea. And so I'm listening and, uh, thinking about resourcefulness, thinking about perceived lacks, uh, which, so I was even imagining, you know, just kind of like going back. I mean, it's going back to go forward. So I'm imagining your, your mother's story, fire towers, uh, lack of resources. And, and I was in my mind, I'm thinking like lack of resources as we, as we maybe understand them, but possibly an abundance of, of resources in the unknown quantities, if you will, sure. the things that are harder to kind of to pull out and, and, and put in front of somebody where they go, yep. And so uh, the tension between uh, uh, haves and have nots of, of a kind and sort of being embedded in that space, um, you know, I'm just thinking about that. It, seem, it seems to me that, because um, well, what I'm driving at is the, uh, um, the depth of awareness that is required to be able to have an authentic voice that can come through in an, in a kind of embedded reality, like the Ro Rolling Stone magazine with, with, I mean, you, when you're talking about all this phenomena, the architecture itself, the city itself. So you're having to, to pass through all of these different kinds of uh, modes of communication that are substantiating something. And you have to be able to kind of embed yourself or encapsulate yourself into that and then allow for your voice to sort of emerge out of that. Maybe I'm off there, but I'm just thinking along those lines and I'm seeing this, I'm highly visual, so I'm seeing this. And then I'm thinking like um, that kind of awareness, that kind of uh, relatedness um, has to be there before you ever get to that point. You know, you have to, you have to know how to be present. You have to know how to also be really embedded in a reality. Um, and, uh, and so I, I actually have that visual in my mind when I look at your work. A lot of the, in, there's a there's a, there's something 
across the the work because there's a diversity of work. There's the illustration, there's the painting, uh, there's image making, there's the sketchbooks. There's there's things that don't live in in clean categories in a great way, and and a lot of the work, you know, an example I've noticed in your figurative work that the figures tend to be just below the surface of the picture plane. And they tend to have an atmospheric quality when they're in reference to a lot. And I'm making gross generalizations here, but there's like uh, the space almost in some ways feels denser than the figure. And the figures tend to tend to feel atmospheric. However, the atmospheric figure tends to have the capacity to push on the density of the context. And so there's a paradoxical weight distribution distribution that you wouldn't expect from an atmospherically uh, embedded figure. And um, and so I guess, and maybe I'm off on that reading. I mean, like this is just me thinking and looking and I'm, I'm hearing your story and I'm thinking about your work and I'm saying like, that's a, that's a, you can't contrive that if, if that's there, that's coming from somewhere. And so um, I guess maybe the question I'm getting at or what I'm interested in is, is the way you value the world uh, outside the studio and how, how is that a part of the shaping of the work in the portfolio? Like how, how, how does the, how do those two things relate to each other? You know, you're saying a word over and over again, embedded. Mm -hmm. It's so weird because I, I was like, Oh, you've read my statement, you know, that you've mm -hmm. read, uh, my mission for my company Legendeer, and, mm -hmm. but you're talking about it just as an observation of the work. So the idea of, of, this is kind of something that we've been coining with uh, with Legendeers, the idea of the embedded artist mm -hmm. and the importance of context and time, so space and time. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that that's the way that art always has been mm -hmm. up until recently, right? So you you hear the old adage for writers, write what you know. Well, a huge part of well, the reason, the reason that we started Legendeer and, and to give the, the listeners an idea what that is, it's a, we're a community that's dedicated to embedding artists back into the world. That's our mission statement. And with the sense that we are living too virtually, too vicariously. Mm -hmm. And when I see my students in classes and all of their information is being run through some algorithm, some filter, some screen, and they're all looking at the same inspiration, the same stories. And it's on this skimmed surface of the people who are the most prolific in self-promotion or the most popular. And that's become the major influence for arts and culture, right. certainly in the people I see. And then not, not to just project that on them, but to say, you know, that's actually what I do too. Mm -hmm. I do that in my studio. And when I grew up, as I was mentioning before, we... We were out in the woods. Mm -hmm. Dad was out metal detecting, looking for Civil War relics. My brother and I were left our own devices in the middle of the woods. Mm -hmm. We found grapevines and we're swinging around like Tarzan. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, we got lost. We got our hands dirty. We experienced the world around us. I mean, that was a huge part of my lesson from from my dad. He was, you know, a, a bow hunter and just he considers the, the the woods and nature to be his shrine. And we would go out. And I remember even as an adult, we were going in the woods and. He would say things like, okay, just stop, mm -hmm. listen. And, you know, as a kid, you don't hear anything. Like it, mm -hmm. it, it's, you know, because you're running your feet through the leaves and kicking up things and there's noise everywhere. And, you know, animals are not going to move when they hear something like that coming. But if you stop and you listen, 
then you start hearing the squirrels bark and you start hearing mm-hmm. things move around. And then all of a sudden the, the woods comes back to life in the absence of your emotion. Mm-hmm. And I remember like I was 20 and I went back out of the woods with my dad and he goes, okay, just stop and listen. It's like, okay. He goes, now look around. What do you see? And there was a potted plant and there were like a pot from a potted plant. There are gloves and there was something else, but he goes, tell me what's the story, right? I said, I have no idea. Someone <laughs> brought a potted plant out of the woods. He goes, no, no, no. They were growing marijuana in their home and they grew it until it got too large. And what they'll do is they'll bring it out here. He goes, over that ridge, I haven't been here, but over that ridge, you will find that someone's growing, they got like a marijuana farm. Like he put all this stuff. He's together. the Sherlock of. I'm <laughs> he telling was doing him. some uh, some inductive reasoning there. Totally, and he goes. That's serious. He business. goes. We're not going to walk in that direction because that's a good way to get yourself killed. You know. So he goes. We'll go this way. He's he reads the land and the earth so wow. well. Like he can tell you where an old home site was. Like these are not indigenous plants. What type of tree is this? So I grew up with that. And I don't know how much of it stuck for me, <laughs> but um, this idea of being in a place, being embedded. It's, it's missing in such a major way. Mm. And I think we're seeing it more, actually. You know, you're, you're seeing a lot of people where they're applying creative principles to how they live their lives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the internet, for all of its ills, it's also benefiting people to travel and to explore. Totally. Um, so that's the space that we built with Legendary, which was, you know, it wasn't quite designed this way. But we get one group of people, if I could stereotype, that are living off the grid. And they're, they're mountain guides, they're rock climbers, they're ultra marathoners, they're explorers. And they're looking for ways of substantiating their life that way and funding themselves. And then we get creatives who are in their studio, they're shut-ins, they, they don't get outside, they don't have experiences, and they're looking for content and story and narrative. Mm-hmm. So what's happened is we start to bring these people into these extraordinary places with extraordinary people they get together and they start teaching each other. Yeah. Like they become uh, gatekeepers for creativity. Like how do you shoot better pictures? Cause I would love to know the academic uh, you know, process behind shooting photography and, and getting better at that. And then that conversation will flip. Like, well, I don't, I'm terrified of going out, yeah. you know, on a hike by myself. What about grizzly bears? And, you know, like in those yeah. conversations, that information happens, but it has become, the very focus of my work, which is being in a space over a period of time, more than just a visual journalist. Like mm-hmm. the, the difference with a, a visual journalist or photojournalist is they are not allowed to participate mm-hmm. by default. It's like you go and you see there's a baby dying. You're not supposed to yep. interfere. Yep. I actually want to embolden a group, a generation of artists to say, not only can we go for our own personal gain and look for story and content narrative and having a rich life, but we can interfere. We can interject. We can do good. We can affect that story in a way that, you know, we're taking the narrative. That's a a very, very honest and and very specific, truthful narrative, but we can interject imagination. Mm -hmm. We can interject our own stories and fiction and, and make bring a credible fiction back from it's kind of an imaginative realism type of right that's right thinking you know yeah. so it, it's that word embedded is the word yeah. it's not even like on the fringe it's the yeah. specific word um, related to the the personal body of work and yeah I mentioned I was up at Library of Congress this weekend and 
I've got a huge project in mind that just was born out of being in that space mm-hmm. and seeing like just in the context of recognizing their limitations. You can't take a camera into the main reading room. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They can really use a, a draftsman in there. Yeah. You know, you're, you're not supposed to, like I brought in my portfolio of 30 pieces for the, uh, the picture book and the gal that brought me in, she was like, well, we've got to talk to the security guard. You're not supposed to leave the library of Congress with any artwork. They didn't check me on the way in and she was afraid I wasn't going to be able to get out with my artwork. Wow. Because they've got 120 million artifacts yeah. and 16 million books. Gosh. It was fine, but that's a limitation. Like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to do a piece of artwork in the Library of Congress that never leaves, that's born there, that encapsulates from time and context? So there's a whole big yeah, that's incredible proposal that I'm cooking up right now yeah, 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 from yeah. this weekend. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, no, hope, I hope I answered your question. Yeah, no, that's great, man. I, I mean, I, I think so. You know, I, I, you know, coming out of a, you know, there's, gosh, there's 50 million thoughts I have running through my head right now. But the, because um, for me, coming out of the context that I'm in, there's the, uh, you know, I tend to think of the, uh, the effects of a work, and, and, you know, one, looking at your work, I've looked at your work for years, and, you know, I'm not gonna say I know all the work, but I'm familiar. And even seeing work today personally or seeing painting exhibitions you've done. And and uh, there's certain phenomena that um, when you were talking, you were saying, you know, that, that we can we can get a story, we can um, create a narrative. There's a lot of things you can observe out here. But then there's also the way that, you, you, you know, you can't consciously stop what gets into you. Right. And so there's a certain kind of embodied knowledge that gets in so deep that it comes out, you know, when it, when it, when it does, when it wants to, how it does. And sometimes it's even, even gets past the conscious mind a little bit. And, and, um, and so I think availing yourself to a context, uh, constantly observing, even just for the sake of observing, you know, like your, your father's story. I, I tell my kids sometimes, like in the past, I've told them, we'll, we'll stare at the trees and say, they're moving. They're actually alive right now. They're, they're growing. Yeah. Or I'll, I'll have my kids stand outside and say, hold your hand out. Now, if you want to, if you stand here long enough, the earth, the earth will meet your hands. You just have to wait. You just have to be willing to wait. And so it's to, it's to, yeah, it's just to activate that. It's to, it's to say that the, the world around us, um, is moving at a rate that doesn't fit. Okay. So it doesn't fit into our, um, progressive, uh, artificial context that actually is, um, uh, co-opting what we think aesthetics are and so it's it's sort of um you know i've been kicking around this idea that we have we're we are aesthetically impoverished because we've over over defined aesthetics and um we've over defined aesthetics uh to be synonymous with art and then art is always trying to run away from the world we find ourselves in I'm speaking in gross generalities here. I, I know it's going to be, but for the sake of saying it, so what's happening is you're getting a narrowing, an exceeding disen, uh, disembodiment, and a simplification or a reduction that leaves people chasing that to the exclusion of the world we find ourselves in, where it is replete with aesthetic value. I mean, it's teeming with it. And we're sacrificing a kind of experience and time for uh, another kind of reality that is the primary reality that operates in its own its own time and, and you, you really are embedded in it.
but we're not building reasons to to stay with it. Um, we're rushing after something that's uh, it's almost like it's um, it's uh, choking us out. You know, I mean, I'm speaking maybe too extreme, but I, I really do fear that we're losing what what we're made for, if you will, or what how our bodies function, why our eyes work the way they work. Like you said, it with the comic books, the smell of the ink. You know, when I open my laptop up, I don't, I don't, I don't get a sensation. <laughs> you know, I don't, like I was at a wedding yesterday, and it's at this old place downtown, and and uh, it's full of um, uh, repurposed furniture and windows and things like this. Huge place. Um, and somebody said, you know, what's weird is I didn't get the smell of old furniture when I walked in here. And I said, gosh, that's a great thought because when I walked in, um, the lack of sensation of smell made the the physicality of the place feel airy and light to me with all this weighted furniture because i associate a heavy smell with old furniture because my grandparents were hoarders and so you know I'm, I'm it's it's literally transforming my experience of this old furniture just because there's a lack of smell there right you know all of a sudden the weight of the place is different it's not bearing on you in the same way but anyway i know i'm dancing in circles here but just thinking about your work i think it's so critical because I, I, I really think the way you've inhabited a space uh, uh, just seems to come out in the work, uh, whether intended all the time or not, that there's the figures in your space or the forms in your space seem to really inhabit that space. And what's powerful to me is to look at an original and then see that in reproduction and see that phenomena persist through other mediums. It's really compelling to me. So anyhow, yeah. Thank you. You know, yeah. you're... Um... I think was really profound what you just said about the uh, the furniture and the absence of the smell that you would expect to find there. It, it, these are things that we play with. This is the a level of sophistication with creativity that's really interesting. You've, you're talking about the the dynamic counterpoint of an expectation. Mm -hmm. Someone has arrested your expectation, and you've noticed subconsciously, at least, you know, that there's an absence of something that should be there, and mm -hmm. you know thinking in terms of design, I, I try to use those devices all the time. I, if a viewer expects a mark will continue, I stop that mark. And if mm -hmm. they expect yeah. that something's going to sit on the surface, then I put it below the surface. Like I'm really trying to make the viewer uncomfortable mm -hmm. because if you're uncomfortable, you're aware. Mm -hmm. And if you're comfortable, mm -hmm. you're not. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So I, I love that, that metaphor. And I, if, if I could teach people one thing in the world, it's, it's to see what isn't there. Mm -hmm. And uh, this this recent body of work of of what I call the embedded canvases, they're um, I was explaining before we came on, but they're canvases that are embedded throughout my home. So they're tucked behind the TV cabinet or under the sofa or the chair. And what I've looked at was the limitations of my life. Okay, so I want to be with my family. I want to be with my wife and with my kids. But my studio practice takes me upstairs, and I'm in isolation. Can I create a way of working that embraces being in the moment, that solves a critical problem I have as a human being? I really struggle being present. You're talking about mm -hmm. presence. I really struggle being like having my mind be where my body is, mm -hmm. you know, because I'm thinking about next things and I, I don't dwell on the past. I'm always in the future. Mm -hmm. um, so, in doing that, that's not a really great way to be a father. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, dad's a daydreamer. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Where's dad? Oh, he's daydreaming right now. He's and, right then, and then when he's not daydreaming, he's tired from doing it. So <laughs> Exactly. So I'm trying to solve that. I want to be, you know, a, 
a great dad. Yeah. And, um, so I, I, I built my business legend of the year with the idea that I could have something the kids could be hired to do down the road. I don't know if it will last that long. We'll see. But, um, I built my professional practice as a painter where they became the catalyst for the focus, the focus, the concept is time. I'm trying to capture a portrait of time by observing the aggregate over context. And then I looked at the limitations. Like I, I really struggle getting up to the studio um, when I don't have a deadline. Mm -hmm. So I created a way of working that lets me sit in these short sprints of five, 10, 30 minutes and capture some moments, then cover them, capture them. And then at some point it does get curated. It gets taken to the studio and I'm right. on my own where I get to make design choices. But in doing that, it reveals the artifacts and forgotten moments and these memories. And I, I, I've never done anything, never done anything like this that has been more jarring and more uh, emotional than tearing off a piece of tape and recognizing this is a face from something that was uh, euphoric or tragic. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're all living this human narrative and we have real highs and real lows and our family life is no different. Mm-hmm. So finding some things in there that were completely forgotten, they were buried underneath layers. Like, oh my God, that, that, that's so-and-so's face. You know, yeah. it's, it's jarring. And I see my kids when they were young and these, right. pe- these pieces take place over the course of a year to two years, you know? Yeah. Wow. So, um, so kind of geologic strat, like, like a strata. It's, it's a funny link, but I, you know, I was talking about Cezanne's uh, paintings as being very uh, geologic. And, and, and when you look at them, uh, they move slowly, but they're really moving. I mean, they're, they're, there's a kind of dynamism and, and they unfold and they unpack and they, they need that amount of time to do that. But if you're willing to spend the time with them, they, they kind of, uh, some of the work tends to give, give something. And so to think about that, um, in reference to figuration and a kind of domestic home life is a really interesting, um, yeah, really vulnerable and interesting way of recording life. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of risk involved with that for me because you're not resting on pure abstraction. Right. Um, I mean, you're resting on real encounters and at a minimum, you know what they are, right. you know, at a minimum. Um, but also the fact that they may translate to other people, um, uh, which is, yeah, really interesting to think about. Well, I think Cezanne is a great example as, as kind of the uh, grandfather of, of you know, uh, cubism and mm-hmm. his impact that on, on Picasso and Brock, right. you know, it's, right. uh, but you've touched on something that the reason I'm identifying as a painter and I don't want to identify as an illustrator is illustration is about the image mm-hmm. and painting is about the artifact. Mm-hmm. Now I, illustrate by making things by making artifacts but to see a printed page is a completely different experience than having to hold uh, a viewer's time mm-hmm. and connection through an artifact mm-hmm. and they serve like i actually define everything in my teaching as one thing versus another i'm playing with deliberate dynamic counterpoints so illustration versus painting what are mm-hmm. the similarities with the differences well illustration we have limits on time we have limits on space it's an external narrative, you know, you go, there's a much deeper path to go down. But as I moved into painting, I wanted it to be a very different thing. And I said, well, there is no limitation on time, right? What I mean by that is, yes, I might have a deadline to put a show together, but if someone buys a painting, it's going to live in their home mm-hmm. and you don't want them to get the message in an instant like mm-hmm. you do with an illustration. That's 
what you are really trying to do with an illustration. Correct. You want them to discover it, like the Cezanne work that you're right. talking about, right. over time. That if you invest in it, it rewards you by giving mm -hmm. more to the story, more to That's the right. context, more to the narrative. It also has no limitations on space. You know, you could look at audience and how big you can sell pieces for it and you know, commercial, mm -hmm. um, but museums, galleries, they're cavernous. You know, they're designed for people to find their way to them on their leisure time. Correct. People have chosen to go there with ample time mm -hmm. to have an experience. Illustration is pervasive by nature. Mm -hmm. It's seeking your attention. It's going to find you whether you're looking for it or not. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're completely different animals. Yeah. 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 And, um, but I, yeah, I, I think that that's a really profound, um, profound self <laughs> gratifying there. Um, it, it's an important thing for me to have found a justification as to why I would paint. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, and I think, um, you know, as a, as a kind of coming out of more of a contemporary art, fine art painter, someone who studied painting and, uh, something about the uh, effects in a painting, uh, the way things push and pull on each other, and how that can actually render credible meaning. Um, it may it may be elusive meaning in the in a in that it may not give you a direct proposition, right. a direct statement. But to say that it's not a direct statement um, doesn't disinvalidate the kind of credible credible communication that occurs. It's just that it doesn't it doesn't operate. Uh, to the mind in, in, in the way that maybe a text does. Um, and uh, it flies in the face, like you just said it. I mean, galleries are cavernous. You actually have to go. It, there is a kind of leisure component, and you have to kind of go out of your way to go to that. And we snicker at that in our, our kind of, uh, you know, American way sometimes because because it's somehow leisurely. But we're good with other kinds of leisure endeavors. You know, there's there's a strangeness in the way that we think about art in... in um, and, uh, but there's a, there's a profundity, like I was just at, just during a show Saturday. And I said that I kept telling people, you know, like you want to, I've said this before, but you want to make work if you can for just the, per the most keen observer, the person who's going to want to like pour over every, every little curve, every little elevation, you know, I, I selected somebody's second, second best over this, this show. And they, they were, a, um, a printmaker and they did silkscreen. But they they had uh, they've been doing it since the seventies, and there was a personal voice, touch, feel, uh, something. There's you just could not come with that come come by that kind of work in four years, um, and most people's proxy for that work would just be Photoshop, you know. And so some of what she was doing when you really pressed into it was just dynamite. I mean, so you're talking as you start to zoom in the minuscule moments scaled up and now you're like, you're embedded in the work right. and, and there's a willingness and they had to be willing. And so there's a, there's a mutual enhancing going on. There's an exchange going on. You know, the work is leaning in as you lean in. And uh, so I, I was like, I have to support this work. You know, I have to, this, this, this person may not get this again. And I think it's completely, completely valid in the context. And um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, there are mysteries to to be explored that are harder to put into language when it comes to uh, the kind of work you're talking about. Um, that uh, that I, mean, I guess you you can't get to through illustration. Right. And I'm not and I and I love illustration, so I'm not like demeaning one over the other. Neither um, am I. I've yeah, got, I've yeah, got yeah. no toes to step on. Totally. You know, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, I think this is an important conversation. I would say that 
to touch on, you know, just your, your statement of, you know, in this culture, we kind of snicker at that, that leisure time is like, no, I, my reverence for that and need uh, the statement that you made early on that people just don't read. Right. You know, reading takes time. Right. It takes a, an intentional, deliberate uh, choice to, mm-hmm. to do that over something that's easier, mm-hmm. something that's flashy, something that's quick. So there are limitations within illustration that I was very thankful for. Mm-hmm. And there are limitations within painting that I'm very thankful for. And I'm, I'm looking at sculptural work too. And it's just, there's every one of them offers a new set of limitations that when, when I see painting, it, it's, you have to sit still with yourself for a while. Mm-hmm. What a hard thing for people to do these days. And, and right. we need a lot more of that. Yeah. 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 This is the nerd out on time is, you know, I boil, you know, I'm not a scientist, so I boil things down into very general categories sometimes. So I talk to my students and I'm like, listen, you know, we always say this, teachers say this, like, hey, average person maybe looks at a work of art for like three or four seconds. We're ferocious visual consumers. We can consume it and upload a story and we're off to the races. We've done it. We're gone. And, and uh, you know, like time uh, in one sense is an accidental phenomena that comes at the expense of object space and motion in a conscious mind you put those together and then you got the phenomena of time and i was i always tell them like uh when you're having a good time what happens to time it goes very quickly and when you're miserable what happens to time it goes very slow so what what's changed there well something um oftentimes when time is going fast it's because there's a quality externalized to you that's drawing you out of yourself such that you're no longer you're no longer keeping track. You can't help it. You're you're enthralled with that which is before you. And um, oftentimes, when you're miserable, there is nothing drawing you out of yourself. So you you're, you you wither inwardly in a way, and and then you're like, get me out of here. Maybe I got to go to sleep. Maybe. And so when I think about art, I think it has that potential to draw us out of ourselves, and and therefore uh, time almost becomes. Um, uh, moot it becomes uh, irrelevant in that sense and and or it's suspended you know yeah. and and therefore a qualitative interaction or exchange occurs and so somehow you're you're changed and um if the work itself can't under or if you as a maker can't at least anticipate or understand that meaning if you can't get form and space to happen in your work um there's not, there's not often the space to be invited in to get entrapped in that space to have that qualitative exchange. I mean, you got to kind of understand that. And I'll, I'll tell people like, hey, you know, if, you're, if me and you were going to um, 7-Eleven to get some like taquito bites um, and that's just down the street, that already sets up an expectation for what kind of conversation we're going to have. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to go on a road trip, I mean, we got time to pause. We got time to think. You know, we got time to be experienced. And, um, and, you know, so, so you can't, you can't fast track that. So some of you, you know, like I think about a lot of artists, friends and students, and and they want things to happen. They're like, I want to be an artist. I want them to have this profound experience. Well, when did you ever have one of those profound experiences? What was at play? And, and how, how is this thing going to be profound for other people? I mean, how is it better than walking outside the your door you know i mean the world's really good (laughs) you know (laughs) like i look at clouds and i'm i mean i've become dorky about it but i'm just like listen the clouds win 
Um, at best, I'm I'm collaborating. I'm a collaborator, but I'm not going to beat that. Right. You know what I mean? Um, that's that's really good. Yeah. Um, it's so good. I you know a lot of us just turn away and we create our own little game, and 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 uh, we make, we govern the rules and it's dissatisfying, but we keep doing it and we just ignore what's right outside the door. You know. Um, but so I, I I find the 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 fine art or the I don't know I don't know how you would want to categorize it. I feel like that's something I want to talk to you about in a minute too. But I find the painting you're doing compelling because I think it's unfolding. So it's embedded, but it's unfolding, and um, I think time allows it to unfold. And I find that to be uh, um, timely content uh, for where we're at as an audience. Um, that it, it I think it requires people like yourself. Uh, being brave enough to step into that world from a vulnerable place and allow others to enter into that. Um, because I'm sure you get questions about it because you, you know, you said I, I divorced, you know, way you, you stopped being an illustrator in a way. Yeah. Um, uh, so anyhow, yeah, those are just some thoughts. Um, well, it, it's uh, thank you for your words. And I, what I will say about it is it, it's when I get into my personal work, I deliberately choose not to talk about it. Because I've talked about my illustration work and process and methods. And, you know, I, I talk about it to the point of the materials being part of the message. But beyond that, right? I, I don't feel a need yeah. Yeah, to yeah, explain yeah. anything. I want people to take something away. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And I think I think I take comfort. I always, I use the language of, um, you know, I often think that uh, in, in if you if you were to imagine that everything that is, is spoken in some kind of way. So like the table is spoken and it's, it's speaking what it is that, that then, then you're not the, the range of what language is, is expanded, uh, which means the materials as they are composed as they are, all these counterpoints, all these interacting points, this dynamic state of affairs that are pressing and pushing on each other. They're all speaking in chorus. They're communicating. And, you know, you can think of them as words to sentences, to paragraphs, to stories. Um, but in their way, on their terms, with their own lexicology, their own grammar, their own syntax. Um, and you have to come to them on their terms. And so that's why I mean when I say it is sufficient, incredible communication, provided you're willing to listen in, in the, the linguistic banner it's being expressed. Instead of instead of funneling everything back to a, a, a limited conceptual framework with a particular set of parameters that, that, um, that I love, but it privileges... Um, it's kind of a Western enlighten, enlightenment kind of thinking and empirical thinking that um, is increasingly is exceedingly valuable. However, it's not the total story, right. you know. Um, and so I'm really interested in that part of uh, uh, the way the world communicates, if you will, and therefore the way the art we make communicates. And we can be sure of that. And I think oftentimes people aren't sure of it. You know, I think they haven't they haven't uh, it they haven't been helped to consider it, or I, I don't know what is what is missing there, but. Um, so for you, have you found that to be something where people constantly are demanding uh, this work to be dumped back into a framework of technique and skill set and some of what you're associated with as an illustrator? Has that been like a, a tension for you? The harder thing for me is is the educator part. Okay. Because again, I've been very transparent and you know, I've got demos and techniques of how I create illustrations and how I... Uh, conceptually solve uh, problems, and I've put myself in that space because I want to, and because I, you know, have there's value to it. I make part of my living off of that, and um, the internet's very greedy. 
Mm. And I've people have taken too much from me. And I look out and I see work that looks like my work. And uh, I, I have people that I've taught who've taken uh, parts of my soul and, yeah. you know, in, in their process and their work without due credit or acknowledgement. And, you know, saying this, knowing that that was part of my learning curve and, you know, but with the message that at some point you've got to become your own person, you've got to find your own path. The, the, the goal is authenticity, but you have to learn skill through emulation. Yeah. So having given away so much, having had people take so much, uh, with the new work, I'm posting it up and, and people will say things like, they'll tag somebody else like, hey, we got to try this. Or, hey, we got to do this. This is a great idea. Like certain drawings I do that there's a way of thinking in them. And uh, now people are openly saying that they want to take that and, and use mm-hmm. that. It's like un- unabashedly, like yeah, not as a learning process, like we need to copy this. you know? Right. And uh, so when I get into the new work, I think that, people expect that from me because that's what I've done. And it's my, it's my own fault, but being okay with not everybody being happy with me because I'm not going to share that. And yeah. uh, the, the thing that uh, Ryan, that you're talking about is that's really compelling to me and important is I feel like as a, as an illustrator, what people think of most as illustration is very much a monologue. Here's mm-hmm. the idea that you're supposed to get. Mm-hmm. This is the concept. And I started off that way as an illustrator. But when I was told that the point of illustration is to illuminate text, well, that relegates it to secondary standing to the text. And that mm-hmm. means it's less important than the text. And like, no, that an image can be communication by itself. It doesn't need text. But when paired with text, they can become even more powerful. So I set out to, to challenge that notion that illustration is to illuminate text. And I try to make more sophisticated ideas that require participation. And that's the carryover to mm-hmm. the, what you were saying is, you know, I want to make paintings that turn people on. I want to actually make them think. I want, I don't care if they walk away from my painting show saying that was really good. I don't even know what good means. Yeah, that's right. You know, that's, that's a yeah. historical context of, well, that looks like something I've seen before. Therefore it's good. Right. I want them to walk away saying that was interesting. Yeah. Interesting is so much more of an interesting word. I want them to walk away saying, I thought about your paintings for, you know, weeks afterwards. Yeah. I had an illustration project come up from uh, the Criterion collection uh, two months ago, and it was for uh, Jan Nemec's uh, Diamonds of the Night. I hope I'm saying his name right. But beautiful film. I hadn't seen it before. And the art director is functioning at a super high level creatively. And he just reached out and said, I couldn't stop thinking about your recent body of work. Wow. Recent paintings. Yeah. He goes, I have the perfect film for you to illustrate. Wow. And so I watched it and the entire film is uh, you've got these two guys who've escaped off of a train. They were going to a concentration camp and they're being hunted through through the, the, the woods. So you get these clips of before and after and the past and the present. And it's it's cut in such a way that you don't quite know what's reality and what's happening. And they're being hunted by these uh, these, these men and they're uh, I think they have dogs, but right in the right vein with my subject matter but when i saw it i was like i know exactly why you chose me for this story Mm -hmm. because it married with my process the content was really interesting it was really engaging you know high art film that i loved the story and the narrative and i got to work and i got to just be me Mm -hmm. and that's something that's kind of come back into illustration Mm -hmm. from my paintings i i've had more opportunities from my kickstarter 
personal sketchbook mm-hmm. that you know that was talking about the the NASA opportunity. It was talking about the uh, uh, the Medical College of Virginia residency. The I got invited to go up to the University of Wisconsin River Falls as a visiting professor. Wow! Uh, with, they've only had uh, fine artists in the past. Yeah. And I went up there for a week and did that. And just one thing after another has happened because of the personal work. Interesting. And that's been, so I'm, I, I feel that I'm getting paid for the value of something authentic that I've done. Right. Um, and that's, I think that's why I'm so excited right now about making things again, because I set the flag. Yeah. And other people have come to it versus I think how we think of commercial illustration, which is you have to follow the trend in the fashion. I want to set the fashion. Yeah. I've yeah. never wanted to follow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's fantastic. I, I mean, as you're talking about this, um, I'm thinking of um, books I've read that don't require illustration, but I guess you're for mass production, sometimes they feel like we'll we'll throw a few in there, maybe at the beginning of a chapter or something. And uh, it it feels tacked on, right? It feels like, oh, this is what we do in service of the text. That somehow visuals are not text, right? Which is um, which is a an annoying concept because I think when I'm when I'm really invested into a story, I think the best way that illustration can work for it is not in a literal sense, but in a way where it's like you were saying earlier with uh, Tolstoy, like the communication of emotion from person to person. How are you actually communicating the things that language in its written form just cannot do? And that's, uh, I think something where illustration, I remember from kid books I read when I was a kid, it felt richer. And I don't think it was just because of like the period of my life. I think it was because of the illustrations were different in some ways, not as to the point, not as linear, not as one-to-one with the text, but uh, illustrations that kind of invited you in and uh, asked you to kind of come in and say like, well, you know, what is this space that we're in with visuals and text? Um, and that comes to mind because I think of when I read uh, Harry Potter for the first time and some of the illustrations just felt very like not to be demeaning, but it felt like a picture book for a kid because it was like, hey, look, this is Harry Potter. Almost like you wanted to see a big capital H next to it to be like H is for Harry Potter. And I was like, I don't I don't want this. I've got a rich visual in my mind already. And I need you to add value to that visual, not change my visual completely. Well, it's, a, it's, like a bad, it's like a bad special effect in a movie. Yeah, definitely. So when the special effects are bad, you notice them. Mm-hmm. And so now you're not bought it. Now you're not, you're not, you're not in the story now. Now you're, now you're out because something has kicked you out. You know right. what I mean? And so when special, when the effects are working well, I mean, I've said this all the time when they're working well, then you're in, you, you, you don't acknowledge them until you're totally done. You know, you leave a movie where you're so in that you're basically the character in your mind for a moment, you know, for 10 minutes or sometimes a couple hours, you're just lingering in uh, this, this world you were just brought into so convincingly but when it's, when the effects are bad, uh, you know, when the, the trick is too cheap, too easy, uh, too quick, just poorly done, not married well to a story. Oh, you're, you're kicked out, you know, oh, definitely. Um, I mean, I, I think of like, uh, like Jean-Pierre Gino's films, like Amelie, where mm-hmm. I think the most beautiful visual parts of it are the things that most people might consider mundane. It's like, mm-hmm. what is the color of the light? Mm-hmm. And that's what like changes it because it gives you this different way to see what's going on. It provides a way to enter into and see mm-hmm. that it's different from what I'm experiencing now. Um, 
and the example I always give for those those shocking moments that jar you out of something is uh, that terrible, terrible movie uh, about the Great Wall of China that Matt Damon was in. <laughs> it's so terrible, there's, I don't know dude, it. Dude, there's like four people that watch it, I'm sure, but there's right. these like aliens. So the Great Wall of China more or less keeps aliens or something or monsters out of China. Strange premise, but there's a moment early on when they're having this kind of fight scene on top of the wall. And uh, he shoots an arrow and does some like acrobatic slow motion matrix style thing. And he shoots this arrow and it hits a monster in the eye and it literally goes <laughs> and it pops like a, like a <laughs> bubble on some phone game right yeah. on your yeah, iPhone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, in that moment, like I heard it and I was like, yeah, we're done. Like I turned it off. I haven't yeah, watched a moment a, past that Yeah, because I was like, it just had a cartoon bubble pop right. when he hit this monster and it totally destroyed any sense of continuity with the story whatsoever. Well, you know, I mean, this gets at audience at a kind of anthrop. I mean, anthropology is a, but at an anthropological level, like we are a giant sense organ. We're walking around with all these things about us that we take in and give out. And if, if that is not in mind or also the way you counterpoint it, like if you, if you intentionally deprive right to in tune or, or highlight and that's uh, composing, and with intention and clarity and purpose. But if you're not doing that, you're not the, the, uh, to your point earlier, Sterling, the audience is inescapable. Um, you, it's impaired. I mean, we don't make, I mean, kids, my kids, first thing they do, they make something right away. They're like, look, it's, it's like intuitively innately there that you're going to show somebody else. It's for others. And to try to strip that away, to preserve yourself. And it means that you're just limiting the, the ability to learn actually, and to actually make things. Um, I, I'd rather, I'd rather make a lot of crappy stuff along the way to something compelling than to deny myself that opportunity yeah. and just live with crappy stuff and pretend as though it's compelling or it's going to resonate with somebody, you know? Um, and I, and I don't know how, I don't, I mean, I think that's even why we're doing this podcast. We're like trying to figure out how to, uh, bring a conversation to a wider audience and invite more people in so we can, we can take on the project of kind of like, I mean, this is so lofty and so maybe naive, but I mean, we, we've been really wrestling with like, what does it look like to re-envision the, re-envision the future of, of what we know, how we know it. And, uh, yeah, for creatives, for designers, for artists, like what could this look like? Um, in addition to what already is pre-existent for how we know things and how we do things and where people go to find that. And that's one thing I was really uh, drawn to with you and have been historically sterling is like, you've been doing things like this. I feel like you've been taking in my mind risks and stepping outside of certain, you know, we love the environment we're in working academically, but you've been doing some things to me that feel like you're stepping outside of that and not in a way to injure academia, but if anything, maybe they're, they're extending kinds of endeavors. But um, I mean, so I'm interested in hearing about that as well. Um, your thought process on that, if you can. Yeah, let me circle back sure. around. I, I want to, like, I'm. You, you all can't see this, but I'm over here with uh, this really stupid grin on my face. But listening to the two of you talk, because, Gareth, what you're saying is is literally what I'm trying to do as an illustrator when I illustrate. So, it actually I attribute it back to something I heard in Wyeth say with Treasure Island. Like, right. so there's this scene where Jim is leaving the Admiral Benbow, leaving home to go on this great adventure. And you see Wyeth paint uh, his mother in the background. She's in tears. And you'll never find that passage in Stevenson's text. Mm. He didn't write it. 
So what N.C. Wyeth has said is he always wanted to illustrate the scene between the lines. Yeah. Something mm-hmm. that must have happened, must have happened, and it adds value to the story. Mm-hmm. I, I said this in D.C. on Saturday. It was the same thing. I said the picture book that I wrote is not a literal interpretation of Robert Burley's text. It's I used metaphor and analogy to describe Lincoln. I, I went through and found there were moments where I needed to, to show what he wrote, but at every moment I try to bring magic to, to that, to expand upon the literal statements. And um, it's, it's quite literally why I left illustration when I did, it was like the, the power shift went from art directors and Mm. uh, editors being the power brokers. Mm -hmm. And without getting into too much detail, there's so much turnover with art directors in New York and other places that, you know, I, I asked my students, like, how old do you think a, an art director is in New York? They're like, I don't know, the 40s, they're old like you. Like, no, <laughs> they're, they're, they're not. They're, they're 22, they're 25, they're 30. They're, mm-hmm. they're super young. And the reason for that is they'll get an intern. And the intern will come through and they, maybe they become, they move their way up to deputy art director. Well, the senior art director gets a new job. They get offered more money. They go down the street within six months. They're not going to hire outside. They're going to hire the deputy art director to move up because they know the system. Mm-hmm. And they get another intern that comes in that's maybe younger. And just imagine yourself in that situation where you've got the editors who tend to stay around much longer. Right. And the editor's in their 40s. And you come in looking for advice. Like, I'm 20-something and I'm in New York and I'm super excited to be here. Tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. So the power shift has happened where you get editors coming in and there's some amazing editors who are not literal, but there's also a lot of people who are, you know, wow. just committed to the text. Yeah. So you get, you end up getting art directors that's being influenced by editorial direction that says, well, the cow jumped over the moon. Why didn't you show the cow jumping over the moon? So as ideas <laughs> have become more dangerous and they have, yes. we see people are, hypersensitive they're hyper offended it's just you can't have ideas without somebody taking it the wrong way so the retraction that we see in publishing and art and everything else is people starting to shy away from things that might be challenging conceptually Mm -hmm. like if it's not literal then it might set somebody off yeah Mm -hmm. and if it sets somebody off we've got pr problems so let's just literally state visually what's happening in the text wow yeah wow so i'm glad you yeah good night and so, that, i mean that's usually detrimental right i mean we understand this you know it's easy for us to kind of have those comments where you know say here's three creative people sitting around a table and we're going to say it's detrimental to to just be going with the literal but i feel like uh you know language does a good job being literal um i don't know that we need to just uh come along sure so. Well, I, don't know. I think that I think that it. Let me say it, it has a it has a better ability y- yes. than I think visuals. Right? Yeah. There's there's I think there's less of a of a wiggle room in there. But um, you know, it's it just it feels largely detrimental. I, when I when I was a kid, I shared this on a episode we did a few weeks back. Um, I was telling Ryan when I was a kid, I would go to the library during the summers, and I would just pull out these books that were like editorial illustration, you know, 1994, and I would just sit there on the floor and look through this stuff. And the quality of it was something like so different yeah. and fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, another you know, economic shifts and things that have changed um, in magazine industry. So, you know, stuff is money has not been what it was at one point. Um, 
but I think a lot of that being lost has made it uh, difficult. But at the same time, it's allowed for emergence of people into a space uh, when they show a different level of craft that really resonates with someone. Um, so I think there's a reason that things like uh, like Christopher Neiman with his work with The New Yorker, right? I mean, like there's a reason that people like what he does. And I think it's because he doesn't always move toward the literal, hey, here's what we said on the inside. Do this thing. Right. Yeah, I mean, you're working with ideas. Again, ideas are, I mean, there are still bastions where ideas are, are supported and they flourish. Mm. But it's just when you're talking about mass market communication, you know, and, and everything is um, subject to, you know, popular opinion or uh, someone's disgruntled and they want to make a statement, they will, it doesn't matter how many people are making that statement or agree with them, the silence becomes compliance. And mm-hmm. we just assume that everyone must agree because that person has been very vocal about it and it, it's it's uh it's immensely problematic it, it is not uh it's not an honest assessment of things and it's not um it's not healthy it's not there's there's no nuance now the nuances even you know so we've i mean this is uh gosh this is near and dear this conversation i mean it changes it changes um changes actually work in the classroom changes how i, how, I mean I've, I've had to um, there's a hyper vigilance that is exhausting and uh, diminishing in terms of uh, what can actually be said with nuance. Right. Um, nuance creates time frames for comprehension to possibly occur. Um, meaning uh, people are different <laughs> and it takes them different, different amounts of time to, to come to an understanding. And so this kind of literalist, um, safeguarded communication is is blunting out all of the nuance. Therefore, all the difference in people, ironically, mm-hmm. it's doing the opposite of what it's supposed to be preserving. And so it's uh, leveling the playing field flat and, and creating a more of a costume difference rather than a substantive difference between folks. And so, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's actually something that I'm deeply concerned about um, in many ways. Um, that's that book, the book you're, your uh the, the lincoln book the imagery you just showed us even um i mean uh i i had looked at it when you f- i first saw it announced online and found whatever i could and um i look at a lot of kids books i got kids we might you might just found out my daughter brag on my daughter ava uh we found out my wife did the math she's read like 700 books this year she's nine she's reading about a book or wow. two a day now not all of them are dense but she's just She's just there and it's Remarkable. just, it's real integrated. It's, it's real streamlined. So it's almost sneaky or like she's doing a ton of other stuff. So I'm like, when she's doing this, I had to think about it. I was like, Oh, she is doing that. She is really reading basically every day, but we're pouring through images. And so, I mean, you get, you, you start to get accustomed to some crappy, some crappy stuff. I mean, oh, yeah. the, 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 um, and so there's a capitulation. So I saw your stuff and it, I, the, um, the, literal effect on me um was just to slow down um to slow down and yeah to slow down and contend with what was there and i was like oh yeah we gotta like we're we're ordering this book for my kids like we have to um and uh you know pictures worth a thousand words but a words worth a thousand pictures i mean they're uh they're necessary to each other they're mutually enhancing their they're they're needed in a way and uh i mean yeah i don't know yeah what do you got yeah it's um i don't know it's it's um 
It's interesting because I um I think of times when I've been like in museums and galleries, um, the fact that um I need to look at an artist statement or a, a card before um I leave the room mm-hmm. because I feel like if I if I only view the work or I only read the show card, I'm I'm not getting a full picture mm-hmm. of something. Um and I mean part of my doctoral work, like the entire core of the doctoral program I was a part of dealt with this idea of text and textuality. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was exploding this idea of text and moving it from the written mm-hmm. to how do we understand text as a multifaceted thing. So as you're watching a dance, there's a text that's playing out. Mm-hmm. There's a textuality of that. As you're watching a film, listening to a song, as you're walking outside and just viewing nature there's there's kind of text that's there mm-hmm. and, a, and a word that we've kind of been uh, mentioning a lot and that i know has come up in a lot of different interviews i read uh with you sterling is this idea of narrative and you've even mentioned this kind of binary of external versus internal narrative mm-hmm. almost as a descriptor of uh what we might call applied versus fine arts um and I, I think I'm really interested in, in kind of hearing from you. How has this idea of narrative really like evolved or changed uh, or morphed in your mind from, you know, an illustration uh, kind of based student to now someone who's talking about painting and writing and things like that? How does narrative live? What does that look like? So, so I think that it's one of these language things, right? So narrative is sometimes seen as a dirty word in, yeah. in painting. You know? Yeah, big time. And, uh, it, it's one of those things that if you go into the world of painting and someone says, well, that's illustrative, that's not a compliment. No. Right? That's that's a directive. That's a, a, a monologue versus a space for a dialogue. And I understand that. I actually, I don't dismiss that. I, I get it. So I use the word narrative um, in the sense that it's a story. It's it's content. Like it, Those are the things I... I I'm really seeking in conversations like these. And as I'm starting to work across different spaces with different types of people who are creative in their own regard. So the, the, the surgeons and, you know, working with the dance department and fashion and working with scientists and mm-hmm. there's things that we use that are codified that immediately turn people off. Like, okay, so the word narrative, if I said that in the wrong context, like Psh, this guy, the illustrator. You know? Yeah. 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 But to me, I could swap out the word narrative with uh, with context, or sorry, with with content or story, and it's going to mean something. If I said story to somebody in the world of animation, that's going to mean something to them. If I took it further and I said um, personal story, personal history, your experience, your origin, all those things come from the same place. If it's an internal narrative you're looking at your own personal history as the source of your own story. So it's a placeholder for a lack of better terms, but it, you know, interject whatever it is. If you, if you want to have these conversations, like really have these conversations and not dismiss somebody because of assumptions, then you tell me the word that fits in that space. Mm -hmm. It's the thing that you're inspired or curious about. That is the catalyst of what you want to make or speak on. Right. Call it whatever you will. Yeah. Okay. So the other categories are that I say are time and space. Now, time is, is universal, and I think anyone can relate to that. But if you say time to a um, a comedian, timing is going to be important, right? If you say time to somebody who's in animation, 
the length of the, the film is going to be really important. If you say time to a painter, the time that they have with an audience is going to be important. So space is the same thing. Is it dimensions? Is it proportions? Is it uh, context? How do you define space? So I'm trying to create these very broad categories by which we start to understand. I call it a three-sided box. We can put those parameters in place. I think those are the universal components in creative problem solving. Once you have those, and you said object, yeah. Earlier, but you, we were I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. relating to what you were saying. Yeah. And then you're trying to craft from those limitations something that's personal to reach an audience or an industry. You know, so it, it's to me, it's just a way of leveling the playing field. But the idea of personal narrative, if I were to give that a specific terminology, it's my life story. It's the things that I choose to focus on. And what I found about my personal work and my paintings is that. You get into a place where if it's an external narrative, people can poke holes in that. Like, well, you're, you're appropriating someone else's story or you're not authentically engaged with that story. How are you credible to speak on that? Like there's, there's room for doubt. Right. But when I start talking about my story, mm-hmm. there's nobody on earth who can't tell me my story isn't valid. Mm-hmm. That, that is my idea. That's my story, my life. It is just as valid as any other life. Mm-hmm. So I become bulletproof and people's perception of the work. You don't like it. I don't care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I made it. It's important to me. Now this might sound contradictory to me saying, well, I'm just painting for myself. But my belief is that if I go so far into personal work that it becomes, um, I'm compelled to make it and I, I'm applying the full capacity of my craft and my ability to it. Again, craft is another one of those words that, you know, the mm-hmm. circles is yeah. dismissed. Right. But if I put everything I can into the synthesis of these ideas, then the yield should be something that's deeply important to me that because it's personal and it's authentic can potentially cut across time and space Mm -hmm. and relate to somebody else who's had a similar experience or idea Mm -hmm. or story. And uh, we see that like with music. So I listen to a song, like I could have wrote that song, not good enough to write that song, but those lyrics, the tone, the mood, I wish I had made that song. Yeah. So that, that's kind of what the um, the external narrative versus internal narrative. That's again, that's me, the educator, trying to relay to students these choices. And it's so funny. I, I I've got this system that I've built where it's actually a uh, a choose your own adventure. I'm like, I want to make this as binary for people as possible. I want to make creativity as accessible and approachable as I possibly can. So we're not dealing with uh, the, these ephemeral concepts that, that are mm-hmm. you know hard to, to grasp being creative you know in, in the world of commercial art like the first well the first thing I ask somebody is like do you want to create work that is uh, commission based commercial kind of top down work or do you want to create work that is personal work mm-hmm. right and that's I, this commercial versus personal and if someone says commercial like great research your industry the industry is going to give you time, space, audience con- content. You know, mm-hmm. work within that. If you want to do personal work, the difference is that no one's giving you text. No one's giving you the content. You have to write your own text. What's the source? What's the origin? What's the the thinking? Is it an artist statement? Is it a biography that you're you're writing? Is it right? You know? So, to me, it always starts with some type of synthesis of thought as text, and you're trying to justify the reasons you want to make the work in the first place. Yeah. So from there, you. Once you've made that choice, then you make other choices, one thing versus another. I'll spare you all the details, but 
it's a it's a path that feels complex, as I said in the beginning, because we're seeing the end point. Mm-hmm. The best efforts of somebody to make something that someone's supposed to hear, read, or see from a fixed vantage point. This is all the process is hidden. But if you think about process over time, it's actually not that complicated. Mm-hmm. Every choice leads to another choice, leads to another choice. And most of that is, you know, there's dynamic poles to that and nuance in between, but you, you take action. Yeah. No, I mean, you're, you're hitting at something that, so I feel it, it, it seems as though we're entering a place where there's a lot of complexity in, in life and a lot of, uh, when you're on the internet, let's say you're the fixed vantage point in a way. And you get the perception that, that there's a lot of content that is fluid, that is up for grabs. But but the facts are you're still foreclosing on one thing over another. In other words, you're, you're saying yes to something, which means you actually are saying no to something else. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was just saying this yesterday to somebody. I said, when I when I go to make a painting, um, in, you know, speaking to someone uh, wrestling with this idea, is like, you, you are saying no to a lot immediately, immediately. And you continue to say no to a lot by saying yes to what's actually there. Um, we have a problem with that when we scale it up, you know. So we start talking about designing a city, or um, but but this this is just the hard fact of reality. It's inescapable. We actually really can't escape it. You can't be all things to all, all people at all times. Um, we do we like we kind of live in a narrative framework, you know. Um, you know, it was like a bug that drove on my windshield a couple of days ago. Hopped on when I was at the hospital, the doctors drove with me all the way down and, and he jumped off when I got back into my neighborhood. End of story. You know, his story goes somewhere else, but that was that was his story. We we kind of jumped into the narrative together at that point, and then we we parted ways. Um, you know, the beginning, middle, end fact is is you know scaled out, but you're 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 always starting from somewhere. You you, you just can't get away from that. Um it's these value categories we assign to things to create these other kinds of hierarchies that remove us from reproach or, um, yeah, I don't know what's at stake. I don't know what you think about that or what, what you feel about that, but I feel like there's something that people feel is at stake that will be lost if I concede to a kind of, um, shared reality. If I can touch on that real quick, it's, um, you were talking earlier and, and about all these things that are intangible and, and, you know, I call that bringing things into human scale. We're doing everything we can to bring the, the cosmos into the human scale. And uh, as we get into that conversation, it's really poignant having been in D.C. this weekend, doing a lot of research into uh, freedom of speech, into uh, copyright, mm-hmm. the ownership of, of individual marks that is actually kind of baked into our, uh, you know, uh, being a United States citizen that you, you can make something and own it through the intentionality of that. I think the, the, the law actually says it has to be a finished piece. I always thought it was just a mark, but I think it's actually a finished work, deliberately finished work. But that idea that when you copyright something, you're actually encroaching on somebody else's freedom of speech. Yeah. You're taking there that you space away. Yeah. Yep. So by creating something, you're actually taking ownership of something. And that means that somebody else can't claim that. So yeah, that's on, right. on that service level, it, it's it's like it's a really interesting idea that um it's not that everything is free and everything is open, no. that you have to take action and move into right. a space 
And in doing that, you're making choices mm -hmm. and you're very much choosing what not to do mm -hmm. by choosing what to do. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's so much better than inaction, which right. is not making a choice at all. And there is no space that is, is claimed or that's conceded. right. Yeah. Yeah. Factuals, counterfactuals, hypotheticals, whatever is actualized is factual. And, and that means that we can speculate on what, what could have been, but at the end of the day, that is, and, and it, it, if it, you can't have it both ways, we can't say it's valuable and not valuable. You can, you, you kind of can't do that. I mean, there's, there's value to whom, to what extent, but that doesn't exclude some measure of it being there. You know, um, you can't get away from it. I think one of the things that you hit at that I think is interesting too, is you kept talking in the, in the universal context. I think that's the thing that I think that's where we're at is we have to kind of go back and recapture a little bit of what is common and basic actually. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a, a way in which I think we've progressed to the point where we're so individualistic. Uh, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Good reasons for that. I'm thankful for that in many respects. However, we've lost a bit of that, um, axiom that the, the assumptions of, of what can be understood universally. And I would say that people, I think here universal and they, they, uh, think it's a synonym with ab absolute and, and, that requires more thinking on both of both senses of what each of those means because they're not the same thing. And so universals actually help us understand particulars. And so I think, um, I mean, I spent a great deal of time just working at establishing what is universal to us that, that therefore becomes our shared reality that we can move out of. So, so when we're getting into particulars, the universals can help us negotiate even that which is new to us. Because whatever is new, like you were saying earlier, you got to some effect of this, like what is new often has some reference to what has uh, preceded it, but it's it's um, shifted your expectations. It, it didn't meet your expectations the way it was set up to. And, and then that becomes the origin of what one might call originality. Um, and so to get to originality or to get to personal perspective or, or expression, um, it would behoove you to consider how much we share in common universally. So to speak to that, you're, you're if you look at it on the scale of, of different forms, and then we're not just talking about creativity here, but we sure. talk about music, religion, politics. There are no creative movements, whatever form it takes, that happens towards things. They all happen away from things. They mm -hmm. have a push-off point. And yeah. you know, ideas are born out of, the marriage of known things, right? You're actually taking things that, that we all know and you're finding ways that they align ways that we can bridge them together. So it's in the birth of that third thing through the marriage of these other things. And, you know, are there exceptions to that? I have not found many, Yeah. but you know, maybe space travel and things that are truly unknown that are discovered. Um, but most of it is we've talked about visual language and, and artifacts and things. There is a combination of things that happens where people are just curious, what if I took this idea one and I took idea two or thing one and thing two and I put them together. Mm -hmm. And so you start to get these really nuanced divisions in um, you know, degrees of Christianity. You know, mm -hmm. It goes down the pipe. You get that into uh, you know, some terrible song I heard recently. It's rap and country and it's just, you know. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't work out well. <laughs> well it's really popular. It's Billy, Billy Ray Cyrus, I think, and I don't but it's just, uh, it's pretty, pretty brutal to listen to it. Doesn't yeah. So that's to the point of originality. Originality isn't a qualifier. Mm -mm. You know, originality doesn't yes. equal good. So I, I, I used to pursue originality and I, I still do, but I think that the more important word to me, and it's, it's overused these days, but authentic authenticity is a good 
way of arising, arriving at personal originality, right? Yeah, so actually, that's right. Versus I found something in the universe that's never been seen before. It's like, well, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I think that's the thing, too. If there was like a Richter scale that could measure degrees of qualitative impact and scope, um, you may do something that's personally original, I think, in, along the lines of the, your approach. And to your surprise and ours or, you know, a, a number of people, you may do something that resonates on a lot of people's uh, the, the scale of a lot of people where there's a consensus where people are like, that actually is something we haven't seen before. But it's never con you can't contrive that. So I think it is born more out of a kind of idiosyncratic personal uh, approach that that um, uh, has degrees of impact. You know, it may just impact for a few people in the room or it may impact a whole city. It may it may impact to the point that it's carried forward in history books or in museums. And so then the, the, the blast radius or the impact radius is exceeding or extending or it becomes cultural extending where it becomes influential uh, to the masses in a, a particular kind of way. You know, there's the there's the influence where people just grasp like, like how many people tried to play like Nirvana after Nirvana played. Right. Yeah. And then there and, and there was the appropriation. And I think you were hitting at that with students and people sometimes that are like still in a little bit of your soul through appropriation. And then there's people that are inspired that are truly inspired that the work got in deep and you may not see the links, you know, uh, at the surface level because the inspiration was internalized and motivated their personal right. voice, you know, and I think, I think that's the, gosh, if anything, that's what you really would, if you're going to choose something, I mean, that's the thing you want to offer. Oh, for sure. You know and, what I mean? and I have no issues with the, the, the latter there. I mean, yes. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, gosh, that was what we inspired to do as creators and yeah. educators and parents and, right. you know, and it's, uh, the need and the want for people to synthesize those things and then to make them personal, right. To, to actually ingest them, but then to find a way to speak their own voice through them because, yeah. you know, none of us are original. None of right. us That's are, right. are, you know, except Prince. I think he said that <laughs> he, he never listened to other people's music. But, He's the one person I, I mean, if, if there's someone I'm like, you might be right. Yeah. He, he could be. He could I, be. I, I do. Prince has elevated over the years. He, he actually has historically gotten a little higher, higher marks for me as more music happens. I'm like, you know, he he was pretty good. He's the original vampire. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, you know, that, to that point though, that's that's what you want, and, and right. it's, it's the other thing where people grab too much onto the what pencil do you use? That that like this, and and I've seen some people I've taught that have become immensely successful copying. Yeah, and they might change the form. The thing that bothers me deeply is when they take the context and the substance and the yes. ideas and like the, 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 the things that I've created and they don't deviate and they think they can put a gloss over it and make it look different. But yep. it's the, the thinking, the yeah. thinking that's, that's, mm -hmm. uh, that they didn't arrive at authentically. They, Let me ask you a, a messed up question. Uh oh, okay. So, <laughs> um, and I'm just curious more, you know, as an educator, uh, do you take, do, do is there, is there ever a point in the back of your mind where you go, I didn't, I didn't teach it well enough to get that not to happen. That's like, I mean, it's kind of a messed up question. Cause I don't really think that, that that's what's happening, but it's just, uh, it just came to my mind. Like, Oh man, like d as a teacher, as you're honing that craft and ha has there ever been a point where you, you, you step back and you get past it and you kind of go, gosh, is there, is there a different way that I need to be communicating this? I, I'm very self-critical as a, uh, professor, I, I'd start off every class saying, 
if I say something that you don't understand, the fault is mine, not yours. Yeah. You know, and, and like, I shouldn't be teaching it if I don't know it inside and out. Um, I think that that's such a deeply personal thing for people. Like if, if they don't want authenticity yeah, and they want the, the accolades, they want the success, they want the recognition, the, the awards and all that. And they're willing to sacrifice the potential for their own voice in the world. Yeah. I can't teach that. That's right. I, I can't un, un, help them unlearn that. So I say it over and over again. This is yep. my path. This is what yours will be different. This yep. is so I want people to want that. Yeah. And I don't think enough people do. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that a lot of people are just comfortable being having these, these, these uh, markers of success. And if they hit them, then they're successful. And, you know, I'll see it with people sometimes that, that I've taught who will work for big studios and companies mm-hmm. and like, you know, I want to, you know, work for, uh, this is off the cuff, not sure the actual examples, but Marvel or Disney or Valve or, or whatever. And they feel like if they get that job at that studio, they've arrived mm-hmm. and like, well, yeah, but you know, if you go into uh, a studio and you're working for uh, Pixar and you're, you're designing, you know, undergarments for kids or something and doing patterns, that's not the same as doing the blue sky development of mm-hmm. the character designs and the story arc and everything else. There are degrees within that. And, um, their parents look at them and say, wow, we're really proud. So-and-so is working at the studio. And mm-hmm. everyone recognizes that as a mark- marker of success. They might be absolutely miserable. Totally. Working yeah. in production. Right. Yep. And, and like, you know, I've actually literally had people tell me if I have to do this one more time, I'm going to yeah. end it all. You know? Yeah. So, um, I just think that, that, that idea of authenticity is uh, of our own personal stories. It goes back to, we were just talking about copyright, but that inherent right and ability to be able to profit off of the things that you make. And that the value in that as a creator is that is our distinction that we need to do things differently. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, we are evolving humanity through creativity. Mm -hmm. And that's a really powerful idea. I think it it charges me like, wow, I have a role other than the ephemeral. I'm going to create a piece of artwork. It's going to hang on the wall. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm interested in thought. I'm interested in manifestation of thought. Mm-hmm. more than anything yeah and also i mean I, I, yeah because we talk about this a lot this is a big thing i mean just um ultimately shaping it it's a holistic shaping influence which would for 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 me would include thought and impact so it's like so when you're looking at like like i said the work speaks in the manner that it speaks it's the it's the multitudinal way in which everything is communicating and shaping which means we have a sign so that's why i would say the arts are pervasive and utterly significant to the way in which we understand ourselves. Um, also even anticipating uh, subsequent people, you know, so I've been using metaphors with students like, um, you know, it's, I get made fun of for this one, but I, I always think of like a bed and breakfast um, as like a visual picture of the idea that all of these pieces come together, aesthetically design, they anticipate your body, they anticipate your mind and, and they welcome you into a, a place you haven't yet been. And, and I've been using that as a way to think about envisioning the future. I don't want to just self-express. I want to anticipate and welcome the people that are not here yet into a future such that when they get there, uh, it, for them, it's as if they were known and cared for. 
and and therefore they have the opportunity then to take that context forward. And I so I tend to tend to be in the future as far as wanting to think about, you know, I want to anticipate, you know, future generations, because I think in some ways, some of the work that we've both alluded to and has done that for us in the past. Um, you've been given a vision of 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 a future you've been brought in right. and it's anticipatory and you cannot be navel gazing only if you're going to do that. You know, yeah. you're going to it's just not going to work. That's a great metaphor. The, the navel gazing is great, but I was thinking the the bed and breakfast yeah. is just a space, yeah, an accommodating space that, yeah. that has a particular acknowledgement of history, yeah, and recognition of the moment, and, right, uh, in context. So and, and it entails everything. I mean, if you if you really want to be geek, geeky about it, I can imagine paintings on the wall. I can imagine a book in the place. I can imagine you know illustrations existing. I can imagine furniture design. I mean, think of all we talk about we need to make things interdisciplinary. And sometimes I'm like, but isn't that already what this is bad? I'm not being, isn't that kind of what a house is already? Like, is it, I, I saw this plumber and this electrician. They don't necessarily talk to each other. Like they're not the same thing. And the, the carpenter and the, the interior designer, like they're all coming together. That's, I mean, city building, home building, society building is highly collaborative already. Right. So then we're, we're, what are we crafting in institutions? Like what is, and and it seems like it, in order to actually achieve the 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 appearance of it, it has to be uh, stranger um, and more divorced from the facts of what's already necessarily kind of interdisciplinary in a way. And I know, yeah, I get I get slack for stuff like that, but um, I like I, it. Yeah, I feel like we're, I feel like we're invent, reinventing the wheel, and and so then and so what we're doing is we're missing out on um, the richness of what's already there for us to 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 pull from to learn. You know, so, uh, you know, I look at, yeah, like you talk to an electrician and a plumber. Um, my dad was a plumber. Like you talk to him and you're like, they're doing some serious problem solving. They're doing some serious collaborative work. They're anticipating each other. Uh, you know, the the designer of the home is working in response to the architect. I mean, this has already been going on. And yeah. We actually get that a lot in, um, sorry, let me scoot back up. Yeah, no worries. Sorry. Our, our, our weird couch. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we already do that in commercial art right so right. if you look at films yeah you know movies yeah if you look at uh video games if you look at you know comic books these are th things that are by nature collaborative and you know you mentioned architecture and, and yeah. design but it's uh i think it's kind of this really new unique space that we occupy in the university and, and the department i teach in mm -hmm. it's uh we're, we're starting to do these really big projects that bring in all of us as experts yep. on these individual moments. Now I look at that as an illustrator. Um, and I, I tell my students like when you become an illustrator, you are casting, you are fashion designing, you're doing the research, yeah. you're, you're framing, you're the cinematographer, you're the director, you're, you're doing all these things, except you didn't write the script and you're responsible for these things. But when you scale out to something that's applied, and I think that that's where the difference is, is, is when I'm doing work, that's personal projects that, are going to be seen with the intention of being interesting and making people think it's, it's not an applied solution. Sure. Illustration is applied. And I'm, I'm, we were talking about this earlier. It's like, I'm, I welcome the conversations about commerce. I welcome the conversations about functionality and narrative. I'm not going to you know shy away from those because those are very much important things. I provide for my family mm -hmm. through my artwork. You know, mm -hmm. I teach too, but for years, I did it just with my artwork. 
And those are things that keep me from having to wait tables. Yeah. It keeps me from having to, you know, go out and do manual labor, which I'm fine with, but I'm getting older, you know? Yeah. 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 The body's breaking down. I can't do it. So when I approach personal work, I'm, uh, I'm looking at every resource available crowdfunding through Mm -hmm. Kickstarter. And I know you guys are doing stuff on Patreon right now. It's Mm -hmm. just a, it's a brilliant tool. I don't love all the contributors right now. I think that that's a, a, a tool that's been waiting to happen mm-hmm. that needs more content like what you all are doing. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things that le- lets you work on uh, the pitch and you're doing tell people what you want to make mm-hmm. and you get people excited about it and they can support you. Mm-hmm. So I just launched my sketchbook on Kickstarter and I've been having issues getting it printed with China and the tariff. And right. Else. So, wow. That's interesting. But what an incredible tool. It took away all the risk. Yeah. You know, other than people being frustrated with me right now, but, um, I want to put a good book in their hands and, you know, hopefully it's timeless. So we'll see. But the, um, I started off this year with the intention, like all I'm going to do at the start, because last year was brutal. It was a solo show and, uh, ran the legend, legendary expedition, which oh, I, I tell you a story about the insurance guy on that. that just make your skin crawls awful. Um, so the solo show that was a couple of years in the making, the, uh, Lincoln picture book, the, the teaching and uh, legendary, all this stuff crashed within two and a half months mm-hmm. of deadlines. It was awful. So I, uh, I started off this year. I said, I'm going to first launch the Kickstarter sketchbook project. Want to get that funded. Did that came into January and I said, all I'm going to do this year is put pitches together. Mm-hmm. You know, so in, in the, the world of tech and entrepreneurship, it's MVP, minimum viable product, right? Yeah. So a pitch for anything that I want to do is I'm going to put a document together, some images. And so I launched four or five major things in January. I didn't expect all of them to come back positive. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden now I'm wow. wrangling with trying to deal with, yeah. you know, a, a, a children's picture book that I wrote, another picture book, solo show. Uh, the residency, the MCV, the NASA project, and it just, uh, I actually had to cut Legendeer out this year for yeah. a number of factors, but it just, you know, I want to be in a place where I'm using public access and communication tools like Patreon and Kickstarter, Indiegogo, whatever it is, to get people excited about what I want to make and then to give it a very uh, capital uh, approach. I want to use other people's money to see the project through. So I'm not taking a risk in doing that. So, yeah. And your conscience feels good, good about that. It does. Yeah. I think it's worth saying that. Well, why, why wouldn't it? I mean, I, so look, my, my wife stays at home with the kids. Mm -hmm. The kids have a good life. We have a a house over their head. You know, we, we've got um, time to travel in the summers because of the the teaching schedule. I have great flexibility, Um, you know, and, and when I get into, into paintings, you know, I had this conversation up at uh, University of Wisconsin, uh, River Falls. I always, it's a long title. Um, that question came up. It's like, well, how do you feel about, um, you know, the, the, the monetization of your work? It's like, well, as an illustrator, that was the point. Right. You know, we would tell illustrators, never work on spec, never do speculative work, mm-hmm. you know, under the, the, the promise that you might get exposure or compensation or whatever. So you'd get a contract and you'd get a, you know, a commission up front, or you told you get a commission when you completed the work in painting, everything's speculative. Yeah. 
you yeah, know, you're, yeah. you're trying to make something. And part of that is the, the, the idea of the purity of making the work. You don't mm-hmm. want it to be soiled with a commercial influence, right? So mm-hmm. you don't want to end up painting flowers for somebody, you know, sofa. So right. unless that's your thing. But so the idea that, that as I move into painting, I knew that I told both of you guys that I started that I knew that this last show was not going to be a commercial success. Yeah. I went into it. I, I, I approached the gallery with the intention of, you know, I wanted to outsource accountability as I call it. I wanted to find a space that gave me a deadline that gave me an audience. Then all I had to focus on was the, the content and the delivery. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden I didn't have to be self-disciplined. I had the pressure of, an expectation that I was going to have a solo show in two years. Like, mm-hmm. geez, I got to get going. So I did that. And I also told you guys that my outcome, I, I wrote it down. I said, the first thing I'm trying to do through the work is I'm trying to capture an impression of time. Mm-hmm. Second thing I want to do is marry time with, with the content that's important to me. So I got to turn the lens on my family and spend time with my family as a result. The third thing I want to do is marry the approach and content, which I've been working on for 20 years as an illustrator. So I've been paid for 20 years to learn a process that's uniquely yeah. personal. And then the final thing was I wanted to create work that was that would be painful to sell. Like I did not want to sell it. Mm-hmm. And got to a place is where... That a, is that a statement? Is that... So as opposed to not wanting to sell it, just wanting to live with it in, in view or hold on to it Hold on to it. Okay. Yeah. So, so not that take the commercial component away. I didn't want to part with it. Yeah. Because yeah, they yeah. were so deeply personal. And I said, right. if I could create just one or two pieces from the show that that emotionally just I want to hold on to. Because mm-hmm. my illustration work, you know, it's put in a that's shelf. That's interesting. Yeah, you're, you're giving away. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean, I, mean I, I own all of it unless I choose to sell it. But it's, we don't hang any of my illustration work in the house. Okay. Because it's so direct and it's so like here's the message yeah it, it, there's nothing to discover so i wanted to create something that would live in our home that would emotionally impact me and through the making and the experience and you know i, I walked with with five or six pieces that it would be really really painful for me to actually sell mm-hmm. so you know, a good thing the show didn't sell very well <laughs> but, <laughs> goals hashtag goals yeah <laughs> but you know you write you look i literally wrote my own rules and i said yeah. this is what my rules are on the show and uh so it became very personal and whatever people think about it is at this point is not so critical to me. I, I have a body of work. My goal was the body of work. I want to take the work now up to New York. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. I've had four personal, four solo shows, something like that. And every one of them, I felt like, well, it's marketable enough to take it to New York and get mm-hmm. in the gallery, but I don't want to paint this work anymore. Right. So I finally arrived at a body of work that I'm inspired to continue to explore. Right. And now I, I have a portfolio to go up to New York with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to take, uh, there's definitely a process to get to a place where you might spend a considerable amount of time exploring the work, uh, making the work where it's giving you enough, it's raising enough questions. It's, presenting enough problems that it, it does two things. It, it continues to demand that you make it. Um, but somehow in a way, does it step so far outside of what we're calling the work that it's another kind of work, right. which is not a problem necessarily, but there's an interesting dance 
um, and this idea of creating space or, you know, you're, you're, you're drawing from such rich resources, both externally and personally, that it's creating a milieu that, uh, that is, is, is begging to be brought into uh, a different kind of state of affairs, you know, such that you have this body of work. Um, I mean, it's such a, such a multifaceted and, and kind of a risky thing. What I love in what you're getting at, I think in your story is that you got this 20 years of learning. Um, so I, I see them as so uh, related to each other that this can become the springboard for the other. So they're not there. I mean, it might be helpful to put them at odds, but in a way they're really not at odds. They're, they're, they're really mutually clarifying and supporting. And it's sort of like you, it seems to me that you've had to take this 20 years to come to a place where you could springboard off that into this work, right? you know, and go swimming, if you will. A hundred percent. I mean, yeah. like 100%. I think back to this Johnny Cash illustration I did 15 years ago and I turned it into the art director and he had a great relationship and um, he was, he was fine with the first version I did and I hated it. I mean, I'm a huge Johnny Cash fan. And, Love Johnny Cash. You know, so the, the process I use now was discovered in that moment of having an extra night on a deadline saying, I'm going to try something different. There's cardboard here and there's packaging tape and I want to see if I can try to compress the three generations of Johnny Cash, you know, middle-aged, young and, and, and old into a singular image, just a total abstract idea that was the most fun I've ever had, the most authentic, exciting, original thing that I've ever made. I didn't pull it from anybody else. You know, it was just yeah. seeing materials and resources and limitations. Like, well, could I do this? And it's haunted me for, you know, a decade. And now it's mm-hmm. like, it has become the thing I want to move forward with. And I, I talked about this last show. The show title was uh, Familiar Interval, and it's about time and space and these embedded canvases. The next show is going to start at the, uh, the hospital, the operating rooms, whatever, but it's going to be unfamiliar interval. So it's a scalable concept where I'm now deliberately breaking patterns and habits and going to new space where the process will stay the same, but the content changes by choice, mm-hmm. you know, where I choose to put myself and. So that's that's the next step and how it will evolve. Yeah. How much re- I just got to care. How much reading do you do? Do you read, read? Do you read a decent amount? Are you a reader? Or are you have you processed a lot? Like how are you, how are you how are you processing information? Honestly, I don't read enough. Okay. I mean, I, I listen to podcasts. Sure. I, I, I read. They they say that illustrators know a little about a lot. Yeah. Because we get stories. Yeah. And, and you know, so that was a big part of it. But my attention is so limited. I like I. I've got 15 books I'm reading right right now and I've, I get into them and I lose interest. So um, it was kind of like basketball, right? So I always had this, and it's, it feels really a little embarrassing to say that I don't read a ton, but as I read, it's like, wow, I could have saved myself 10 years. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, so I had to say, no, it's true. And yeah. um, you know, so, but it, it, when I played basketball, you know, I never loved watching basketball. I never loved watching professional what? basketball. I never loved watching what? college basketball yeah. because I would rather be playing. Yeah, that's true though. Yeah. I get that. And so I would just go to the court and play. And, and yep. I feel the same about making and writing. Like I write all the time. So I, I read not a lot. I write daily. Yeah. And I draw constantly and I make all the time. So um, I, I don't sit still very well. 
Right. I don't vacation. You've well. done a good, just so everybody knows, he's doing a good job right now. He's been sitting pretty still. <laughs> he's probably going to die afterwards from sitting still, but. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, that's the joke is I, I, we go on vacation. I just don't do it very well because I, right. I got to, yeah. I got to move. Like you talking, uh, Gareth, you got to move and, and talk with your hands and mm-hmm. I'm the same way. Yeah. My, my wife is always like, yeah, we need to go on vacation for like a half a week longer so that we can spend the first half of vacation where you're getting actually in the mode of vacation. Oh yeah. Um, it's like, it's like a, a slow, like almost like molting, right? You're yeah. like coming out of this skin to reach a new space. Well, it's you know, you get, off a ro- you get off a roller coaster. If it's compelling yeah. enough, when you're off of the roller coaster, you still feel the experience of being on the roller coaster. Mm-hmm. I think our work rhythms, our creative rhythms are, are something similar. So you Definitely. step into a quiet space, a profound uh, picture of your father saying, listen, right. You know, and then you have to really do that for a minute. And then you have to be still for it to all, all come to be. And um, I think about that with reference to my kids and my wife, and my family. It's like I I, ha- it, I can stop and then there's the the patterns and the rhythms that just, you know, and that takes it takes me a bit of time to listen for those to slow down. And a lot of times I don't set up enough rhythms for that amount of time to occur so that I can actually be resting and be present in a way that I think would be self-giving and you know beneficial to the people i love and and care about i mean that's something i I wrestle with you know so i i've had to think about my career choices in um i did this about i don't know i mean i started saying this about 28 years old but so i'm 43 now i i've I've really said i'm going to take the risk and look at this for me as a long-term thing. So I have long-term goals and I've reverse engineered the long-term goals back to where we're at and what, what I've been doing with painting gallery. So everything has taken a little bit of a back seat in order for all of this stuff to sort of march forward. And you know, those are choices that you make and there's a risk in that. There's no guarantee that I'm going to be around that long, but you know, um, I've tried to kind of like set things in motion in a way that uh, I could be excited about and not feel like I'm compromising to other people's standards or expectations. You know, so I can get I can get grief sometimes for not just being a studio artist only, mm-hmm. um, and I, I, sometimes that's a disqualifier. Some people uh, look down on that, and it's like I'm no, I'm no less dedicated. But you know, I've looked at even Shaco Art Space, and even all the stuff we're doing is an extension of of that. Yeah. You know, it's not really at odds. It actually flows out of it. It's like I don't really pit teaching against making. They're not really. Uh, one for the other for me. Um, they, they're mutually beneficial to me. I, I, I really can't imagine them as separate things. Like well, I'd be, I think there's that yeah. conversation that we've had a lot um, that I always try to share with students as well, that um, there's this like caustic idea of balance in life. And I, I really can't stand that conversation. So when students are like, well, I just, I'm having a hard time balancing my, my schoolwork and my personal life. Yeah. My question is always like, how are they not integrated? Yeah. Like how yeah, is yeah. what you're doing here so compartmentalized right. that it has nothing to do with the other? Right. And I think that has, uh, it goes back to the, the problem with vacationing as well is that I feel like my work is so integrated into who I am and what I do that, I mean, just because I changed geography now suddenly I'm not doing yeah, this that's thing right. anymore. That's you right. Know? It's, yeah, it's yeah, difficult. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to pull that out. Yeah. Um, but it's also, um, one of those things where, uh, I think if we compartmentalize too much, then we get into a space where it's hard for us to really um, give things the time. There isn't that kind of uh, incubation period that goes on because we've said, oh, I'm going to set this aside now. Yeah. Even though there are those times where like for mental health, relationship health, things like that, it's good to set some stuff aside. Right. 
last thing I say on that is it's also a disregard of the agency, if you will, of the thing independent of you. In other words, like if, if things are worth their salt, there's got to be a kind of ontology to the thing that at some point is independent from you and possibly can exceed what you thought it could do. Right. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. So it's not that it's hamstrung to your capacity. It actually uh, can possibly far exceed that, which is, I think, part of the intrigue of, of uh, thinking of future audience is that. Um, and so if you don't give enough time to what a thing is, you can overassume what it is and, and hinder it from actually being. It's like a person, you know, if you overassume what a person is, your child or whatever, um, you're not, you're denying something fundamental about what they are as, in, as, as distinct or independent from you and having its own agency. And I know paintings are not the same thing, but uh, uh, the things we make uh, ha have that fact about them and it remains to be seen until it's out of your hands to an extent, you know? Yeah. You, you don't get to control that, you know, the, the, yeah. the way that things are received. I, you were talking about reverse engineering long-term goals i was listening to a podcast minimal minimalism um i forget the author's name of the book but he's like no think about your legacy 20 years later 40 mm -hmm. years like think beyond your lifetime like, mm -hmm. like yeah. what impact do you want to leave and you're talking about the, the bed and breakfast and yeah you know what legacy do you want to leave that's beyond you know 60 70 80 90 yep. years and reverse engineer from that and that's that was kind of a mind-blowing ideas like yeah that's that's i mean there's a hubris involved in that yeah that you might right but to to have a, a positive legacy of, of how you would impact the environment or people or whatever it is is uh i think that's such a major shift right now right so it's not just my life and the world needs to cater to me it's how do i do good in the world and then yeah. benefit from that you know and, and uh that's got to be a longer term Right. And one of the things that for me, because I, I do think that way, I got the 50, 80 year. And part of that, too, is to alleviate. So, gosh, the, the idea that uh, I think there's a Charles Taylor, a famous philosopher, I mentioned this in another podcast, but um, Canadian guy, he, he talks about what he calls the eminent frame. And what he's saying is that the way uh, uh, humanity is experiencing reality uh, uh, excludes a transcendent aspect. So everything is eminent. Um, there, there's uh, nothing but the moment and it's bearing so hard that the self is buffering, uh, before this eminent moment. And so it's, it's, it's hindering the thinking and it's, it's creating a removal. And so when you're in a long drive and you know, you, you kind of at least have a vague destination, it's going to alleviate certain pressures of expectation because certain things just aren't going to happen within that time frame. And so you, it gives you freedom to think with reference to where you're headed. And I think there is that which is bearing on us, but I also think there's that which is going to extend past us. And so trying to re-imbue a vision of the future as a fact so that you're not crushed by the present, that it's not all an eminent framework. Not everything is equal and equally bearing on you. There, there is differentiation. There is therefore reason to prioritize and there's reason to take a deep breath and kind of go, I don't have to be crippled by anxiety right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that uh, as we look at, environmental things that are happening that's uh that's what's been so devastating about you know we were given a timeline yeah 12 years you change everything or mm -hmm. everything is done you know yep. I mean, and, and however people are interpreting that that what a way of it hasn't been a catalyst in the way that no. it should but people are like 
so they're, they're crumbling saying, yep. what, what can I do? And yep. you know, what change can I have? So it's a, that's a language thing. That's, you know, very caustic. It's very dangerous. I wish it were more empowering. Maybe people are still processing that, Yeah. but there will be individuals who see that and say, okay, that's my call. That's my, there's, there's going to be people who change That's right. what they've been working on to say, if, you know, I've thought about this, like, do I shift my focus yep. away from paintings and drawings that will might not have an audience at all you yeah. know, down the road to focus on, we were talking about wicked problems, you know, just like these things, could I contribute to something that, that NASA is doing and going to Mars? That's, right. that's hope. I, I think that's why I've been so excited is these projects I'm being involved in are, are hopeful for yeah. humanity. They're mm-hmm. hopeful in the marriage of all of these, these pieces that, that don't seem like they should fit, but absolutely do fit together. You know, scientists and artists and creatives getting together in a space to talk about blue sky ideas about, you know, not just science, but the soul of science that, mm-hmm. that art is. So, um, I don't know. It's just, a. it can, it can be spun. It can be pivoted. And, yep. you know, it doesn't have to be dark and despair. We can look at this as a hope and an opportunity to actually significantly impact people. Dude, I think that might be, I think, I think that's, that's a, that's, that's a, a closing statement right there. It's the period like, on the conversation. Here's the thing. Right I there. actually feel like of, like I, we probably only got through a fraction. I'm just <laughs> yeah. going to be honest. So, you know, maybe, maybe a year or two from now, we may have you back on if you're willing to brave another, another round. I just think there's actually more to talk about. I don't even oh, think yeah. we scratched the surface. Um, we but, just need to grab a beer. Yeah, let's grab a beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, Take a beer break. Yeah, a couple beers. <laughs> we could have probably bought some, brought some beers in here today. Should have done that. Um, you have any you have any closing thoughts for us, Gareth? No, I think it's fantastic. Um, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Yeah, Sterling. thank you. Sir. This was uh, fantastic, and I, I agree with you, Ryan. I think there are, there are whole areas of conversation we could probably venture into. Like um, we didn't talk about how important it is. Like names. Your parents gave you a good one, man. Yeah, <laughs> the whole real. thing. You know, well, it, it doesn't take away from your ability. But I, I, I'm I'm starting as I get older. I go. I think there's a mystery to names. Sometimes names are powerful. Yeah. They, they they punctuate what is the case. Well, I, I, I've people will tell me that that I've got a good name. I was like, I try to earn it. Yeah, yeah, I really try to earn it. Yeah, that's what I say. It doesn't doesn't take anything away. It it only punctuates what's there. You know what I mean? It only it only it's like boom. It it does it. Um, you know, yeah. That's why Hollywood people manufacture names. Oh know? yeah, I mean that's why yeah. David Bowie is not David Bowie's real name. Yeah, and that's, that's right. why he became David Bowie. Yeah. Well, I was kind of jo- you know, so I'm kind of joking, Sterling, but. Um, well, but, yeah. real quick on that, uh, yeah. maybe a, a, Do it. another, a second closing. So I went by my middle name, my whole life up through high school. I went by Clint. Okay. So my middle name, Clinton, my parents always called me Clint. And, uh, when I was leaving high school, I didn't like who I was very much. And this was a, a very, I've heard Tony Robbins talk about this. You know, it's like, you know, he talks about designing himself. Yeah. And I wrote things down. I said, I've want these things. I want to accomplish these yeah. things. I want to be this person. I want to be confident. I want to be able to speak in public. All of these things. This is one of these things that I, I tell people and they, they, they roll their eyes and they, they're kind of aghast. But I was in a fraternity in college, but I chose the fraternity because it was in need of help. Sure. And I could be a leader in that fraternity. And I wanted to go there for a leadership opportunity. I wanted to go there to learn how to speak publicly. Yeah. And, you know, got into the place where hazing was you know supposed to be on its way out and they tried to haze me i said no i'm i'm leaving they came back and they asked me to be the vice president and you know i abolished all that junk and yeah so 
there were things that I very deliberately chose. And I wrote a, parent, a note to my parents. I said, I would appreciate it if from now on you called me by my first name, Sterling. And I, I created a character mm-hmm. that I wanted to become and poured my efforts into bringing that character to life. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm not who I am. No, that's I, right. I, yeah. I, I designed my best self moving away from the things that I didn't want to be anymore. Yeah. I mean, intention. So intentionality has run through this whole talk. Yeah. And I would just yeah, want to say that definitely. that's a, it's a gold mine of just, of, of just to camp out on what it means to be intentional. Right. Mm-hmm. That the first move is going to be you. So with support, with community, with all of the things that come with it, at the end of the day, you still have to get up. And so I think, I think that's something that that's, that's very compelling to me. And one of the things I want to say is that um, we, you know, when you're a kid, you know, I watch my kids put on their clothes, my clothes, you know, try dad's shoes on and they can't, they look clunky on them, but they're, you know, I've said this before, they're going to, they're probably going to step in and fill those out. Um, and, and sometimes I buy my kids clothes a little bigger cause we've got a lot of money and, and they wear them a little clumsily until they, they fill them out. And then they, and then they have to take them off because they don't fit anymore too small. And I think, uh, there's that, that carries forward into what you're talking about. So it's not that it's inauthentic. It's just that I got room to grow into that, which I, I am or want to become. Yeah. And I think, uh, sometimes we can wear, uh, the gaps clumsily, but the, the clumsiness is not, is not a signifier of inauthenticity. Right. If anything, it's an indicator of, of the, 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 uh, the process that it requires to, to move through life in this way. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, I think, I mean, I'm, I, you know, it's funny, funny way to end and and it's actually quite compelling that, that, uh, that you would share that story. And, um, gosh, if, if students are listening, I mean, let alone artists of all kinds, like we, you know, we got a wide audience. Um, uh, that's a great, a great thing. I think a great reminder for all of us is intent. Okay. Here's the thing. Intentionality is not in, in authenticity. And I think, uh, uh, authenticity is sought after and it feels as though you have to do it in a way that uh, excludes being intentional. Like it's just going to happen to you. Right. And right. I, I don't know that, that that is the case. Well, I mean, if you are authentically seeking to be your best self, yeah, that's the intentionality. Right. right. So it, it, I think that uh, it gets convoluted and confused with sure. fake it till you make it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. hate that. Yeah, I think that's problematic. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, I mean, I've certainly said in the past, but it is problematic um, because I think it's something, I think it's, I think the opposite is to, the way I was trying to get at it is to say that there's an honest accounting for the kind of being that you are such that you will necessarily grow. And then there's molds we grow into, right. um, that it seems like that's something part and parcel to what human beings are. We grow up into things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you, you got to move it off the mantle as a, like a, you know, the difference between a trophy and doing it. Listen, I'll take being able to play the game again at the way that I did as opposed to the trophy. The trophy just points to something that happened that may or may not be true, but I'd rather go back and do it. So, so the process is, this is it, you know, there's no trophy for it. You know, there's signifiers, but at the end of the day, I want to, I want to be moving into this process, growing up into it. That was Um, good. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. He brought it full circle. Yeah. Yeah. Good times, dude. Sterling, thank you, man. Yeah, thank you so, so much, good. Sterling. Yeah, thank y'all. This is awesome. And if anyone gets uh, gets an opportunity to check these guys out on Patreon and uh, get down here and check out the space, this is uh, it's something something big's happening here. Yeah, thank you. Likewise, thank Every, you. yeah. All right. Close, I got, I close got, out, I, Garrett. Okay, so uh, yeah. Uh, again, thank you, Sterling, so much. Um, are there? Where can we find uh, your current work right now? Things so that folks listening can follow you. 
I am on the Instagram. Um, so just uh, at Sterling Hundley, uh, pretty fairly active in pockets over there. Uh, SterlingHundley.com. Mm-hmm. Um, we're moving towards putting things back up on Legendary.org, but we're um, in a bit of a hiatus this summer. But yeah, just uh, those three. Yep. Great. Fantastic. That's great. And um, again, to uh, everybody listening, thank you so much for all the support. We couldn't be more pleased with how things are going. And also one uh, question that we always want to come back to you with is please let us know the things that are really resonating with you. What's uh, what's good? What's bad? We want this to be a conversation, not just us talking um, out into space, but we do want to have uh, the conversation and the feedback that we've been getting. We're very appreciative of. So thank you all for that. And uh, until next time, thanks for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent, nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottle.